This week's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com slash mrcreeps to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. Hello everyone, I hope that you're all doing well. We have another awesome episode for you this week, jam-packed with your favorite scary stories. Shall we begin? Let us drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Of the people who go missing, 1% are never found or seen ever again. Written by G. Petkoff It's cold and I'm afraid. I'm trying to figure out what happened to me. This is what I remember. I live in a small town in Germany. I apologize if my English isn't the best. There isn't much that you can do here, so like every Friday, I'm getting ready to grab drinks with the girls. Before I left the house, my mom was telling me to text her if it gets too late. Just text me and I'll come pick you up. She had yelled at me. I had walked for about 15 minutes and then it had happened. A strange coldness and an overwhelming darkness. The last thing I remember was the feeling like someone pulled me through a small hole. I felt pain everywhere, like I was being pulled and stretched over and over again. My bones breaking and then being put back in their places again and again. I screamed, but it was like I didn't have a voice and then I woke up. I could barely move. Whatever happened to me still hurt like crazy. After I got up on my feet, I pulled out my phone and wanted to call my friends, but all I saw was no signal. I woke up on what seems to be a country road. I decided to follow the road and maybe see if I could find somebody to help me. The first thing that I noticed about this place is that you couldn't hear a dang thing. No birds, no wind, no cars, nothing. The whole place seems lifeless. The trees, the grass, all of nature in this place is stripped away of all life. I'm terrified. So I just keep moving and hope to find help. Suddenly, I can hear someone crying very quietly in the distance. Naive as I am, I rush to help the person. Maybe they can help me. As I get closer, I see an older woman kneeing and crying. Hey, do you need any help? I said slowly as I approached her. One step before I could touch her, she turns around. I scream like never before. Her whole left side, it's falling apart. Her mouth is almost gone and her left eye isn't there anymore. I can't get a word out of my mouth. What was happening to this woman? Where am I? She can only crawl because her left leg is decayed, and she's trying to tell me something. With her right hand, she is signaling me to come closer. I am hesitating. I lean forward and she whispers, Abandona este lugar de Merida. Surprised the woman didn't speak German, but luckily I know a little bit of Spanish. She said, Leave at the bad place. Frantically, I yelled, How can I leave? And then in Spanish, Como, como? She said something that I didn't understand. 
so I just shook my head. With her only hand left, she pulled out a little piece of paper and gave it to me. Follow, she said. You're coming with me, lady, I said, determined not to leave her alone. As I try to get her up to help her walk, we hear from the distance a car and screaming noises coming in our direction. I'm confused. Are there other people in here that are trapped? She grabs me by the neck and says, Hide. Whoever is coming must have heard my scream from earlier, but why should I hide? I decided to trust her. Until now, all she did was help me. I run and hide behind the trees nearby. A red truck stops at the side of the road, and three men and one woman get out. I didn't understand everything, but I remember what they had said. We have you now, Maria. Couldn't run forever, we told you. The woman on the street couldn't speak anymore. Her condition, or whatever it was, was only getting worse. Last chance, Maria. Join him and you will be restored and set free like all of us. Instead, Maria just spit on the man's shoes. Fine, you had your chance, he said annoyed. He pulls out a small axe and smashes it directly into Maria's forehead. Red splashes everywhere. I put my hands to my mouth to not scream again. I can't believe it. They just took her out and then they took the body and left. For a while, I didn't want to leave the place where I was hiding at. What if the same thing happens to me as what happened to Maria? Who are those people? Whatever this place is, it's trapping people from all over the world here. But then I remembered the piece of paper that Maria gave me. I opened it and it's a map of the road. With a red color, a line is drawn, like a path that leads to a small mountain at the end of the road, with big letters marked, Escape, and with little letters reading, Only at Midnight. What if it's a trap? But then again, what choice do I have? I need to find a way out of this place or at least someone who can help me. I gather up all the courage that I have left and make my way to the mountain. Trying to stay off road so that the people from before can't see me. As it gets darker and the sun settles down, I can hear more and more screams coming from everywhere, both from men and women. Those screams, I honestly can't describe them. I never heard someone scream like that. I don't want to be here a minute longer than I have to in this place. As I make my way through the woods, I hear a strange sound. I can't tell if it's human or not, but I instantly hide behind a large tree. I soon hear footsteps running away from something that moves with heavy and fast steps. Something that runs with force, fast and unnatural. And then a scream. I peek to see what's going on and then I see it. A young man on the ground and then this thing. Large and strong, I don't know what it is. I haven't seen anything like it before. It's giving off crying and a screaming sound from it. And it can crawl and it has six legs. I can't see if it has any eyes though. I can see the fear in that man's face. It has large spikes and it crawls. With his big teeth, the creature bites the man into his shoulder. Red runs down from his body as he screams in agony and then I see it. The man starts to cane. His whole body falling apart, 
just like Maria. That must be the explanation for Maria's condition. Maybe she had encountered the creature and managed to escape and her body stayed in a state of decomposition. While the creature is occupied, I try to move and hide somewhere else until it's gone. I see a large stone that I could hide behind until it leaves. As I make my move, I step on glass that I didn't see. Instantly, the creature notices me and it let out a big scream again. I felt like I was paralyzed. I couldn't move. The screaming continued, the creature moving fast in my direction. Well, that's it, I thought. And then I hear shots, two men appear and they start shooting at the creature. The creature falls back and it starts crying. Go get her, we have to move. I hear one man yelling. The other one approaches me and says, Get up, we need to run. As the other man keeps shooting at the creature, we run to their car. Get in. He steps on the gas and we drive out of there. Come on. But as the other man approaches the car, he keeps shooting at the creature. The moment the other man entered the car, and we slammed on the gas again and drove away, leaving the creature in the dust, only hearing it scream and cry in the distance. As we arrive, I could see the top of the mountain. I'm getting close, maybe close to home. We hid the car behind some trees, and then one of the men moved some branches that were on the ground, revealing a small door underneath them. Quick, get in, he whispered. Inside the door was a small room, smaller than my room at home. There were some guns, food, and a huge map of the place with marked up spots. Each of the spots had one word written under it. Crawler. I thanked them for saving me finally. The one who drove the car and saved me was called Peter. He was from the Netherlands. The other one was Victor from South Africa. Victor had been here for two months and Peter for seven years. They both tell me that they like me and that they don't know how I got here. Only that they had experienced these same things like I did before they had woke up in this place. Their theory is that there is something from where we come from that pulls people into this place. So that the crawlers can feed on us. Peter goes on to tell me stories about how he survived here. And how many people he saw die in this place. The life is sucked out of them by those creatures. He just hoped to see his family again. He says that they're waiting for him. I tell them about Maria and what had happened to her. And they tell me that there are groups of people that swore an alliance to the creatures. And their godlike figure who rules over them. They hunt down other people like us. People who dare to stand up against their ruler. Helpful, I show them the note that Maria gave me. They both look at each other and just shake their heads. We tried that many times, Peter says. A lot of people die because the crawlers know. They come and wait for us to make our move and then they feed. All night long. He explains that in these seven years that he's been here, only two have managed to escape but they never heard of them again. He also states that the portal opens only once a month at midnight. His theory is that it opens because people are also being pulled into this place at the same time. I tell them that, even though it's risky, I want to try. I want to go home. Do you want to stay here for the rest of your life, or do you want to see your families again? I ask them. We would die if we try that. There's no chance for the mission. There are three of us, and we could barely handle one crawler on its own. 
and there will be much more. Victor warns me. I'm sorry, but I have to try. They both look at each other, acknowledging that I won't back down, and then Victor asked again. You know how to handle a gun? I got a 10-minute crash course on how to use a gun. If you shoot at them, shoot in the head or the chest. That's where they feel it the most. Five minutes to midnight. Our plan is set. We can hear the creatures outside screaming and crying, and Peter gives Victor a nod. Peter slowly opens the door and moves to the car. He puts something under the car and gives us a sign to move. We all hid behind the trees. The peak of the mountain is only about 500 meters away. I can feel the vibration in the air. Peter points to the peak, and a huge electric force field appeared. You have to touch it, Peter said. And then what? I asked. I don't know, never got there in time before, and we only have ten minutes from now. Victor pulls out a remote, looking at us. Ready? We both nod. A huge explosion fills the night sky. We can hear the creatures, six of them all running towards the car. The distraction had worked. Now run, Peter yells. All of us sprint like crazy towards the peak. I can now clearly see the force field in its reach. As we sprint, I trip over a stone and fall to the ground. One of the creatures had heard it and it's now sprinting back towards me. I tried to pull out my gun, but it was stuck. There it is in front of me with its huge claws and spikes ready to launch at me. I just put my hands up to defend myself, fearing the worst. At the same time, Peter smashes a huge axe into the creature's back. The creature screams out in agony. Now the other creatures are hurt too. We were done for. Victor started shooting at the other creatures going after us. We need to move now. We're almost there. Peter helped me up and we started running to the portal again. We were only about 100 meters away now. Victor was now already at the force field. Touch it! Peter screams at Victor. As Victor touched the force field, a big blue light appeared for a second. It was so strong that I had to close my eyes and when I opened them, Victor was gone. Okay, it's your turn. Before Peter could finish his sentence, one of the creatures had pierced him through the back with one of its spikes. Peter screamed out. His blood splattered all over my face. Peter, no! He dropped his shotgun and without really thinking about it, I pick it up and blast the creature into its chest. It drops to the ground. Come on, Peter, get up. We need to leave. We're only a few steps. Get up. Nah, this is my last ride. No, you're going to see your family like you said. They're waiting for you. You never told me your name. Sarah. It's Sarah. I'll see my family now, Sarah. We all got pulled together in this place. They died a long time ago, and I'll join them in a better place. You have to go now. Peter makes his last breath in my arms. Even if I didn't know him, I still feel broken. I can hear the crawlers getting ready to launch again. I turn around and see the force field fading. Only a few steps left. One last time I looked back at Peter as I see ten crawlers storming in my direction. I touch the force field. Again, the strong blue light. And then I open my eyes. I can see a very familiar street. It's the street where I live in. 
I check my phone, no messages, but the phone is working. As I look at my house from where I was standing, I hope that Victor had found his way home and that Peter would find his peace with his family. I couldn't wait to see my parents and my siblings again. Even if I was gone for only two days, it felt like an eternity. As I approached the front door of the house, I could see my mom through the window, smiling and preparing dinner. My dad and my siblings are laughing and joking around. Excited, I wanted to press the doorbell, but then I saw it. That can't be. A shiver ran down my spine. It was impossible. I saw myself, laughing and joking and talking to my family. That's not me, that can't be me. Something or someone has replaced me, and it has been with my family. I write this as a warning. If you go missing in the bad place, you have already been replaced. I would like to extend a large thank you to today's sponsor, Policy Genius. Policy Genius is a marketplace working to help insurance shoppers understand their options, compare quotes, and buy a policy all in one convenient place. I first learned about Policy Genius when I was talking to one of my close friends. Throughout the years, I've learned just how important it is to account for the future. And while we were discussing that, he brought up the fact that he had recently used a policy genius to quickly and easily get a life insurance plan. Life insurance wasn't really on my radar before, but it made sense to me to get a policy now. It gives me peace of mind knowing that my family are much more financially secure in the event that something would happen to me. And that peace of mind is worth a lot to me. Luckily, Policy Genius made the whole process a breeze. It's your one-stop shop to find and buy the insurance that you need. They make it easy. and Just click on the link in the description or head to policygenius.com slash mrcreeps and answer a few questions. In minutes, you can compare personalized quotes from top companies to find your lowest price. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. The team of licensed experts at Policy Genius will help you understand your options and apply for the policy that you choose. Their team works for you, not the insurance companies. You can trust them to offer unbiased help and advocate for you at every step until you're covered. Head to policygenius.com slash mrcreeves to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. Thank you once again to Policy Genius for sponsoring today's episode. I've discovered alternate dimensions in our universe. We don't have much time left. Written by Weird Bryce Guy I believe there are imperceptible forces energies and intangible things which arising from some sub-dimensional source act on our minds, influence our thoughts, and perhaps even create entirely new thoughts, ideas which we wouldn't have normally, naturally considered. The human brain largely remains a mystery, and it is still yet a small, trivial thing compared to the enigma of the universe. We try to grasp that new understandings, reconfigure frameworks, and occasionally even drop new schematics above. But we have neither the resources nor the time, as biological beings, 
to fully chart and comprehend either puzzling object. The universe, regardless of its contents, is simply too vast, and the brain is just too complex. I tried for years to understand one and then the other, and in neither case did I uncover any truths or perceptions not known, or hinted at by men of science and philosophy. Even when pulled together, compiled and collated, our collective knowledge of these subjects is rudimentary at best. Realizing this, I underwent a period of depression, a lack of knowledge, the inability to fully know myself, the brain from which I arise, and the world in which I was born drove me to nihilistic depths. I fell into that classical existential trap known as despair. I became numb, apathetic, and physically lethargic. Activities that had before impressed and pleased me became uninteresting, ordinary, and unfulfilling. And people in whose skulls existed that confounding object became ghosts, specters through which I walked, disregarding their presences, intelligence, and emotions. Life became completely autonomous. And I am sincere in saying that I do not remember those few years during which I was plagued by this heightened and persistent state of indifference. It was as if a lethean spell had been placed upon me. Eventually, I met a woman and, compelled by the ultimate goal of life and evolution, I married her, and we started a family, had a son. And this occurrence brought on a powerful renewal of my existential fire. But even that did not last for long. As I raised him, I became terrified that he too would be cursed with the desire to know the secrets of life and creation, and succumb to the same depression that I had faced, and was still facing, albeit internally, never showing such feelings around my wife or son. I kept my languishing concealed within, expressed subtly and placidly. My son quickly grew to be a smart and kind young man and I'm excited to see where life will take him. He is the best of me, a new, superior iteration, if you will, and my wife and I are extremely proud of him. He prospers in school and in his social life. He shows no signs of succumbing to the same fate that I had. He is strong of heart and determined of mind, and most importantly, a compassionate boy. A few years into the marriage, I suspected that my wife knew about my psychological malady, even though she had never asked about it. She's perceptive, and can always assess my moods and act accordingly. When one day I came home from work, having suffered considerably from a relapse of the aforementioned depression, and I sat despondently in my office chair, she brought me some coffee and read a few poems from a collection of Lord Byron's work. She always ended with my favorite, Darkness, and recited it in a way that brought the grim, apocalyptic scenes alive. When she had finished reading, and I was in a much better mood, she left me to go exercise upstairs. I stayed in my office, recalling my day, and after a while decided on what would have to be done to ensure that the following day did not go so badly. The troubling issue is irrelevant. And despite the elevation of my mood, I was still afflicted with the depression. It's not something so simple as a regular sadness, which can be easily dealt with or at least tolerated, 
if the cause is specific and can be reconciled. So my attitude had been temporarily made better, but my overall psyche was still impaired. My dismal mood, not removed, but made to slumber. This must be known and made as clear as possible, because I believe it is still this persistent illness of the mind that allowed me to be susceptible to those ultra-mundane, extrasensory, or otherwise extraordinary forces which I mentioned earlier. As I sat there staring at my bookshelf, mind adrift, I started feeling odd. This feeling wasn't exactly unpleasant, but it felt like nothing that I had ever experienced before. And this foreignness of being impressed me with simultaneous senses of excitement and dread. Excitement at the newness of it, dread at what it could mean. I had never been significantly ill before, not physically at least, and a sudden and strange feeling could easily be the preamble to some disease. The feeling remained and nothing else accompanied or arose from it, so I regarded it as nothing immediately alarming. It was as if my entire nervous system was being stimulated, and the resultant feeling made me extremely sensitive to everything around me. The darkness of the sparsely lit room became deeper and conversely, the light from the lamp on my desk burned like some vermilion sun. My chair took on an uncomfortable firmness, and the soft humming of my computer became as distracting as the raucous of construction machinery. The shelves, teeming with volumes of all sizes and subjects, seemed to push outward and sink inward, as if the walls were breathing in a steady rhythm. Seeing this impossible animation, I got up and left the room, not exactly frightened but too disoriented to remain. I went quickly down the hall, up the stairs, each step coming to me as thunderously as the collision of a judge's gavel against wood, and finally arrived at my room, exhausted from the sensory barrage. I entered on my hands and knees, crawling past the threshold and onto the carpet of my room, which felt soft and inviting in certain areas, and rough in others. I had never been able to detect such an inconsistency before. My wife stood before the foot of the bed watching the TV opposite of it, which played one of her workout videos. She wore a slim-fitting black sweatsuit, and I could actually see the spots where the perspiration had begun to soak through. Weirdly, these spots seemed to shift and expand and retract. It was as if they were alive, appearing not as accumulations of sweat but sentient, slug-like creatures. She looked down on me and while I did see worry on her face, it was a different kind of worry. One not born of surprise at seeing her husband crawling on the floor, clearly upset by something, but a worry that intimated knowledge, a worry at how I would handle the cause of my distress, a cause of which she was apparently aware. She took a step towards me and it was as if a mountain collapsed in on itself. This, it must be said, is significant because my wife is very graceful and has a remarkably light step. She can approach anyone with complete silence if she chooses to. When the metaphorical rubble had settled and the earth had ceased its groaning, I looked up at her and asked what was happening. She returned my gaze but didn't speak, and I silently thanked her for it, because my own words had come out with such a sonic force that I feared my head would burst from the internal echo. 
With all the overwhelming sensations and accentuated perception, I thought that my condition would lessen over time, that my brain would begin to resist whatever psychotropic agent that acted on it. But instead, the phenomenon increased, and my perception of the world was intensified two degrees beyond description. It was agony, a hyperreal bombardment of every imaginable stimulus. In a strange and unaccountable series of visions, things were shown to me in the once flattened featureless grayness of the carpet that my mind could not fathom, that my pitiful human sense organs could not tolerate and thus discarded. This ignorance, this avoidance was something that I somehow knew had occurred before the onset of my condition. But then, on the floor, I was still made aware of the stimuli, still acknowledged somehow their existences. Like taking a potent, pain-numbing medication and drawing a blade across your arm. You don't feel the pain of the cut, but the damage is there right before your eyes. You're not human from the physical harm being done. And so, I was made nightmarishly aware of things which before had been ignored by my senses. I was given a second sight, an initially dim yet mounting vision, an extrasensory glimpse into both the extra-dimensional and sub-dimensional, into the spaces between the particles, and the domains beyond our universe. Things impossible to relate with words, pictures, or models. Things that would make mankind, Earth, our solar system, and the Milky Way altogether seem like shallow impersonations of cosmic order by comparison. I saw through that increasingly potent second sight, images so profoundly insulting to the significance mankind placed upon itself, that I began to doubt the legitimacy of my status as a living, thinking being. Seconds or hours later, my senses were focused and consolidated into a single hypersense of sorts, and it was as though this newly arisen organ or a special impression that I passed from the world of the material and into something else, an infernal place. I was fully aware of having consciously left my wife, and yet I still sensed her, in some vague capacity, accompany me to and through this sidereal void. I was, or I perceived myself to have been, encased in some sort of shielding, because I found myself floating in the open blackness of vacant space, in front of a massive, fire-ringed portal. Through the portal I could see stars, or what I believed to be stars, but around it and myself, everything was unending, unblemished blackness. Pulled or driven on my own accord, I floated towards and entered the portal. I emerged from the portal into a space aflame. Indescribable shapes, worlds, creatures of unrecognizable anatomy, all were aflame in the tumult of a cosmic fire that was infernally present throughout the space that I had entered. Amidst the cosmic crematorium burned black, massive suns. They were perfect, spheroid conflagrations that soundlessly discharged a black fire. Despite this umbral burning, the space was still illuminated, as if the flames gave off shadows that illuminated an area rather than darkened it. And due to their silent burning, I heard something that terrified me. I heard with an audible clarity that was as perplexing as it was terrifying. An evil cackling. A laugh as of demons in chase of prey. In the ocean of spatial fire laughed billions of black stars. 
a chorus of sadistic stellar bodies jeering at the alien victims they were incinerating. There wasn't a direction that I could turn to that was devoid of the monstrous orbs, at distances from mere hundreds of feet to millions of light years away. A tenebrific sun cackled and spat its fiery mockery at the alien lifeforms that writhed in untranslatable anguish around me. A massive, polished purple, winged Coleoptera tried with futility to abate the pervasive heat that seared its body. But it was not magically for what other reason there to be, protected as I was, several hundred miles away. I saw and heard with that same impossible sensorial acuity, a population of tripedal mammalian creatures being externally carbonized by the crematory suns. Their cries so awful, so pained, that I felt an almost debilitating empathetic sensation. I beheld lives, species, entire worlds being extinguished in the boundless hellscape that I inhabited. In contrast to the omniperiphial chorus of solar laughter, a distinct voice could be heard, from a distance that I could not guess at but which seemed both far away and extremely close. This voice, as I had heard it, came from an individual, a single entity seemingly unlike the solar bodies that dominated the Ultrahadian region. I sensed the mind, a singular sapience that gave an impression of a sovereignty, as if it alone held true reign in this another space, its dominion acknowledged by even the laughing bodies. In an instant, without any indication that had earned its attention, I was transported to the being that I had sensed. Before me, in a space unburnt by the wicked black suns, hovered a small form. To my shock, it bore a humanoid shape, a familiar face. It was only a few tones lighter than the black aura that bled from it, and yet I recognized its features. It was my son. His face was on that floating, monarchial object, staring at me with eyes that somehow appeared both alight with youth, yet wizened by the passage of eons. I tried calling out to him to ask how I'd arrived here, and why he was among such awful and impossible things. But whatever shielded me from the insane heat also prevented me from speaking, or interacting at all with my environment. My son, at least, the thing that wore his face had opened his mouth, and out from him came a surge of light, and I felt this light sear through the shielding that had protected me, and I heard behind me the sudden cessation of those laughing sons, and then their abdominal death cries, and then silence. And all around me, everything was turned to nothing, suddenly and totally destroyed, and I perceived only my own immortality. My eyes opened to find my wife crouching above me, with the same worry that I had seen before across her face. She had helped me to the bed and laid my head on the pillow. The carpet where I had been kneeling, suffering, was scorched, as if a great swath of flame had passed over it, searing it down to the very roots of the threads. There was ash everywhere, even floating in a tiny haze a few feet above the floor. Looking down at myself, I saw with shock that I was completely naked, that my clothes had apparently been burnt away, and the same fire that had swept through the room. I turned to my wife and asked her what had happened, but she shushed me and told me to get some rest. I did as she had commanded, and after drawing the bed covers over myself, I drifted off to a dreamless sleep.
I awoke later in the night, my senses had returned to their ordinary limited capabilities, and nothing that I touched felt too soft or too hard. There were only faint traces left of the once fulsome ash. My wife had almost cleaned most of it up sometime during my rest. I got out of bed, relieved myself in the bathroom, dressed, and went downstairs, where I found my wife in the kitchen preparing dinner. She embraced me, asked me how I felt, and I told her that I was fine. She said that we were having spaghetti for dinner, which smelled delicious. It's my ultimate weakness, and I sat at the table. She then told me to go ahead and ask the question that I wanted to ask, and so I did. She answered, and her explanation was far more believable than I had expected it to be. She made me not promise to explain how she had acquired the influential item due to its exclusive use and her highly specialized line of work, and I will not divulge that information. But she confirmed that yes, I had briefly been transported to realms and states that humanity cannot ordinarily inhabit, visit, or even view, and would not for millennia without the aid of the influential item. The timepiece of the black horologist an almost sorcerous means of transmaterial relocation. She said that they weren't even children on the evolutionary scale compared to other entities in the uncharted gulfs of deep space, and that if we encountered them as we are now, they would view us as we view dust, inert and without life. When I asked why she had given me this ephemeral ability to see yet not understand the unseen, she said that I had moped around for too long and that it was beginning to sadden her son, who had always been high-spirited and, of course, perceptive. Thankfully, my son had been at a friend's house at the time and was not around to see his father so distraught. When she had mentioned her son, I asked if she knew what I had seen at the end of my experience while trapped within the cathodic space, and she said that she did not. She informed me that she had never tried the experience herself, and that the knowledge of its use came from others of the lab, who had no obligations of sanity to a family. I explained the imagery to her, and her face contorted into deeper levels of awe and horror, as I detailed the cyclic and apparently eternal cremation of the alien beings. When I mentioned seeing my son, she seemed to mentally sink inward, as if in consideration of something profound. I asked what she was thinking, and she responded with her own question. Do you have any idea why you saw Alex in the face on that mighty thing? No, why? Eat, and think about it while you do. I'm sure that you'll come to an answer. I ate in silence, turning the abysmal experience over and over again in my mind. It wasn't until I had cleared my plate and gone into the living room to sit with a cup of coffee that I realized what it all meant. On the table nearby was a picture of my son and I from a few years ago. We were in the front of the house, which I had just bought at the time. Alex sat on my shoulders and we were both smiling, and Alex had his mouth open in a shout of joy. I remember turning around and letting him direct where we went, as if I were a mech and he were my pilot. During my journey, my delving into that blackly burning abyss, I saw that cute face on the entity that had, with its scouring light, incinerated those monstrous, infinitely cruel suns, and the lesson came back to me. 
As my wife had said, I had moped around for years, depressed and downcast by my ability to fully know the mysteries of myself and the world. But what I didn't before realized I hadn't even considered was that not all mysteries are worth solving, not all truths are worth knowing, that I shouldn't be dejected just because I can't know the unknown. My son's face and my son's joy should be enough for me. Ensuring his happiness above all else should be my goal, my fire. That joy which, once seen, can eradicate all horrors and worries which may haunt my mind. That is the ultimate truth I saw, of which I was made so profoundly aware during that fantastical journey into the nadir of the universe. With this knowledge in mind, I'm happy that I will be long dead when humanity develops sufficiently enough to physically voyage to those ultimate depths of cosmic darkness because I never want to see nor be intimately reminded of the horrors therein ever again. I'm a taxi driver. I had a passenger that I will never forget. Written by like I did. We are all cursed and we can't even see it. Our eyes won't show us. I was always under the cocky impression that my taxi and I knew the streets of Berlin like no other. You can't begin to imagine the unexpected horrors I witnessed during my night shifts. You see, people show far less inhibition when it's dark and sometimes they even reveal a whole different identity. Still, even in my 15 years of experience, it couldn't have prepared me for this one night. Berlin is quite the adjustment if you come from a small Kurdish village like the one that I'm from. I've grown to like my work in this city, but it has its cursed sides and that's mostly due to the people. Peculiar people that might appear friendly and normal during the day, but change entirely as soon as the sun goes down. As a driver, I've learned to observe and notice things. Like when I happen to drive a member of some criminal family around. You won't believe how many of those we have in Berlin. But it's not my place to judge. I'm just a driver. I have tons of stories. Some sweet and some disgusting. But there is only one night of driving in all these years that has left me sick to my stomach. One that left such a bitter aftertaste that nothing I eat brings me joy anymore. And that's the night that I met Julius. When I don't get a call to go pick someone up, I wait in line with the other taxis at the metro station. Sometimes I spend hours there, having coffee and a cigarette with other drivers while waiting for passengers. We tell each other superficial stories about our lives and make bets on who will have the best affair of the night. One time I drove a man to a city 200 miles away made the same money that I would usually get for three entire nights. Julius's fare was in a similar price range, even though we never even left Berlin. At the end of the night, I didn't ask him for money. It was a cold and foggy night, and typical for the beginning of March. The type of night that you would rather just spend in bed if you didn't have to work like me. I remember thinking that when the passenger door of my taxi suddenly opened from the outside, 
letting in a cold gust of wind. The cold swiftly disappeared again as this young man with dark hair and just his dark eyes smiled at me. Are you free for a ride? He asked. This man could have been 20 or 36. I honestly couldn't say for sure, but I remember vividly how he was radiating something warm and comfortable. He was wearing slacks and a black jacket, underneath a nice white shirt. I don't know much about clothes, but I could tell that someone had perfectly tailored his wardrobe to his body. Maybe that's why I believed him when he said this would be a long ride, but that he had enough money to pay for it. Of course, I said yes, and I asked if he had any luggage that he needed help with. Just this. He held up a little wrapped package the size of a book and grinned, but I'll just put it on my lap. He sat down in the passenger seat. Some people do that, usually the ones that are alone and feel like talking. Where can I take you? Do you have an address? I asked. He fastened his seatbelt. No, not exactly. I'll just give you the directions as we go, if that's alright. And that's what he did. It was fine for me as long as the meter was running. Dill. That's a nice name. He said after looking at the card I have in the front of the car with my name and number on it. Thank you. I said while starting the car. It means heart. It's a... I looked behind me to safely leave the line of cars but froze when I noticed the cars behind me were gone. And not just the other taxis. Everyone was gone. The entire outside area of the metro station looked deserted. I looked at Julius, but he didn't even seem to notice that anything was wrong. He only smiled. For a split second, I swear that I saw something move in the reflection of the window next to him. But when I blinked, it was gone. Heart, that's beautiful, he said casually. I swallowed and rubbed my eyes. Another look outside proved to me that I had been imagining things. There were people with bags rushing to their cars, taxi drivers standing around with a cigarette, drunken teenagers chatting loudly. Everything was normal. It was after 3am. These things happen during the night shift. Your mind gets foggy. I just couldn't let this man notice. I didn't want to lose a fare that can make such good money. Luckily, he was oblivious and continued our conversation. I go by Julius, but I have no clue what that means. We both laughed. Well, it's nice to meet you, Julius. I said and I meant it. We passed one of my taxi driver buddies as we drove off. He tilted his pale face as he watched us drive off with a distraught look in his eyes. I felt a knot in my stomach as I passed him, but didn't yet understand what my gut was trying to say. When there are passengers in my car, I have the occasional chat with them, about the weather or about the latest football game, but I'm not a talkative man. Some people pour out their souls, but those are the ones that I use the least words with. Once in a while, however, I'll meet a special person who doesn't simply talk to fill the silence in the car, but who is genuinely and truly interested in the lives of others. Julius was just like that. Special. Do you have night shifts often? He asked as we were driving down a particularly dark road. Only on weekends. 
Money's best on Friday and Saturday nights, I said. You must sleep away the rest of your weekend then. He laughed and I joined in. Well, sleep is a wonderful thing. There's nothing more comfortable than resting your head on a soft pillow after a long night, I said. I absolutely agree. If I could sleep forever, I would. He laughed, but it sounded forced. It's ironic, isn't it? We work so hard to earn a living, but as a result, we end up losing the time to actually go out and live. With all this confidence, there was also a melancholic side to him. His charisma reminded me of my older brother, but in some ways, I also saw myself in him. I sighed. If it were up to me, I would have a simple life. A small house in a village with a garden. Plant my own veggies and maybe have a couple of chickens. I added to his thought. Julius turned to me with a raised eyebrow. Our eyes met for a second before I had to turn mine back to the street in front of us. His eyes were incredibly dark as if they only consisted of pupils. I know that sounds creepy, but it wasn't. It felt familiar. Distracted by our conversation, it took me a while to realize that we were driving down roads that I had never seen before. Driving in between multi-story buildings without any lights on. Well, it was the middle of the night, but still. And it felt incredibly strange not to recognize my surroundings. I'm a taxi driver, but I always felt like I knew the whole city. Well, something must have happened down that road of yours to end up in the biggest city in Germany then. Julius interrupted my thoughts. I laughed. I'm here because of my family. And the village life with chickens isn't for them, I said, surprising myself. I never open up to strangers. No, I never open up to people at all. No, Julius called out as he leaned back a little. You're a family man, of course. You're a family man. And we do everything for our family, right? The way that he said those words made me feel a little odd for a second, but I shrugged it off. Always. Julius smiled. We interrupted our conversation as we had arrived at Julius's first destination. A small kiosk where he needed to drop off his mysterious package. I'll be back in a second. Wait here. He looked at me with a surprisingly intimidating look. If you don't know what a kiosk looks like, it's basically a tiny corner shop. The windows are filled with beer crates and bottles so you can't see inside too well. I have no idea what happened when Julius was in there. Only that after a few minutes, all the lights inside of the shop suddenly turned off. That little shop that was the only source of light in this dark street anyway, now almost disappeared in front of my eyes. I had weirdly trusted the stranger because everything seemed so fine and I had felt so comfortable. But after he left the car, I got this odd feeling inside. A new sense of paranoia mixed with a rush of anxiety. Something inside of me was shouting to get the heck away. I looked for my phone but couldn't find it quickly enough. Impulsively, I set my foot on the gas and got ready to leave but before I could, the back door of my car had opened. Julius jumped back inside, with the same friendly smile through those familiar eyes. Except now, he wasn't sitting next to me but behind me. Where to now, my friend? I nervously asked, hoping he didn't realize that I was just about to take off. 
I don't know why I didn't simply tell him to screw off. For some reason, I couldn't find any courage. I'm glad you called me that. I would like for the two of us to be friends, Dill. He took a deep breath. Just follow the street for now. I started driving. Again, following the streets as my passenger instructed me. Finally, I felt like I had recognized the area again. We were back by where the station was. Dill, my friend... Let's get back to our family conversation. Do you get along well with your son? I stayed silent for a moment. We used to be closer. Teenagers aren't always easy to deal with. I laughed. Oh yeah, teenagers. Things are much better with your daughter, I assume. We were driving down a quiet neighborhood again. With a few lights and I had to really focus on the street. Used to... My daughter, well, she is a wonderful kid, but also a little bit off lately. Not quite herself. A teenager too, I guess. I stopped talking. We had been driving around and talking for so long that it really took me a second to realize what had just happened. I had never told him that I had a daughter and a son. No, yeah, she's more distant, locking herself up in her room, hardly eating any food anymore. That's unfortunate. You still love them though, am I right? He said. I felt incredibly nervous. I had made some big mistakes by trusting this man with my thoughts all night. Something was definitely wrong, but I had to try my best to stay collected. He could have some really bad connections. Oh, I have a love for my family, but don't we all? I nervously said. No, you don't. Surprised at his sudden change of tone, I looked into the rearview mirror to make some eye contact. Julius, the man that I'd been driving around with all night, was gone. I looked into the face of a creature that I had never seen before. His dark eyes that felt so kind earlier now looked completely wrong. As if somebody had slammed a screwdriver into his eye sockets and filled them with a dark void. There were holes in his face filled with some kind of fungi repulsed by this entirely wrong phase, I forgot to watch the street for a moment and almost crashed into a parked car. I swerved just in time, catching my breath and collecting my courage. My heart was beating so fast that I thought it would jump out of my chest. It was late at night, I hadn't slept. I didn't have any water for hours. I was hallucinating, I told myself. Though at the same time, I couldn't bring myself to look in that mirror again. There's something wrong, my friend. He chuckled. I instinctively turned my head around and saw the same Julius with his regular face sitting there, with a smile on it. Yeah, sorry, I mumbled. Long night. Slowly, I tried to collect myself again. What did you do inside that kiosk? I finally asked, surprised at my own sudden courage. Even if that face was a hallucination... But this man still knew things about my children that he shouldn't. He seemed so interested in my life earlier. In reality, he wasn't trying to get any information out of me though. He already knew everything. What was this man trying to get from me? I'd get rid of him, but I had to be smart about it too. So I decided to drive towards the home of my brother. My brother, well, he is an intimidating man with a lot of power. 
a shady man who doesn't shy away from violence. If this Julius meant danger, he would know what to do. Julius's eyes were closed. I thought that he might have even fallen asleep, so I quickly changed the direction. I tried to stay confident, but my entire body was shaking at this point. As if he was reading my mind, Julius's eyes opened, and I knew without a shadow of a doubt that this night would ruin the rest of my life. Don't try to be smart, Dill. Julius suddenly spoke with a low voice. I clenched the steering wheel so hard that it looked like the skin on my hands would crack open any second. I know where you're going. Don't. I have no interest in meeting your brother. Not tonight, he spoke. How do you? I whispered. I know you saw me in the mirror. You didn't scream, and I like that. You know, I feel like I can be myself around you. He grinned. My eyes went to the mirror again. None of it was a hallucination. I don't know how to describe it in better words, but I know for a fact this thing was not human. It was hiding behind human skin. Now, I'm going to be honest because I do truly enjoy your company. This night wasn't about dropping off the package. That's a different business of mine. Tonight was about getting to know you. A million different thoughts were racing through my mind, but all I asked was, Why me? He chuckled again. Oh, please, don't be worried, my friend. I can feel this entire car shaking. I'm not here to hurt you. This is about your family. It's corrupted. I could smell it on you from miles away. I swallowed. If you're not going to hurt me, what else do you want from me? Julius was smiling at me through the mirror, his mouth revealing a set of rotten teeth. Being what I am, it's lonely. The fact that your family is corrupted isn't a bad thing. You know, maybe you could introduce me to them sometime. We were on an empty road. There were no people around. Nobody that I could ask for help, but I still hit the brakes. I felt sick, but not from whiplash. You're wondering whether you should jump out of the car, wondering if you could outrun me. He sighed. But you won't. I took a deep breath. No, I won't, I whispered. Because you love your family. I nodded. And because you notice that the eyes of your daughter have recently started to look a little bit like mine. He smiled again and I stayed frozen. Maybe you should check her reflection, my friend. Are your eyes open? I played a VHS board game called Don't Look Behind You, written by 10 Minute Horror. We met once a month. It was always a Friday at our house. My younger brother Davey and I started a horror club with my two best friends, Jeff and Brad. We talked to our parents into letting us have the club on the last Friday of every month, where we would inhale a few bags of chips, a couple bottles of Coke and Sprite, and watch three or four horror flicks. We would also go over horror comics that we'd read, the occasional horror board game or two, 
anything and everything horror-related, we were obsessed. The typical Friday would go that mom and dad would pick the four of us up from school and take us directly to Rogers or Blockbuster to go through the vast sections of VHS to rent. Though we would spend the whole time in the horror section, there was a deal for five rentals for the weekend, so our parents would get one choice and we would get four for the night. We would watch one before dinner, and then three in a row after that. Davy and I shared a room with a bunk bed, and had a TV and a VCR in it, so Jeff and Brad would sleep on the floor on mom's yoga mats and we would try to stay up all night, but we would all usually be out cold by 1am. Stacy, our older sister, always came home around that time. I could hear a lame boyfriend crack his car engine from several blocks away. Sometimes she would come in and try to scare us. One time she got Craig to climb up the side of the house and bang on the windows with a gnarly mask on. That sent us. I was usually the last one awake and I would stay up, thinking about the crazy stories and monsters that we had just watched. I would rate them against one another on their scariness. If there were any snacks left, I would finish them in bed, up on the bunk, while looking back over the covers of the movies that we had rented. The next morning, we would all have breakfast and talk about the different flicks that we had watched, and maybe rewatch the last one if we had fallen asleep to it. Brad or Jeff's parents would pick them both up before lunch and everyone's lives would return to normal, and I would be left waiting for the next month to come. This horror club Friday finally came and with it, Jeff had a surprise for us, but first, the video store. We rented a creep show too, Fright Night, The Blob, The 80s One, and Tremors. I had seen Tremors and Creep Show too, but Brad and Jeff hadn't and they were pretty fun movies so we agreed on them. We started off with those two, before moving on to The Blob, which none of us had seen, but all immediately loved. It was now 10.30 and Jeff was ready to break out his surprise. We had all wondered what it was, sitting in a large garbage bag in the corner, the entirety of the night. Jeff explained that he was out with his mom at an old boutique-style bookshop, filled with antiques and ancient film reels, records, and a small VHS section. He had scanned through the movies, hoping for some horrors, but he only found older classics. There was one, though, in a plastic case with a homemade label. It sat on a large, rectangular box the size of a board game, which was what it turned out to be. When Jeff told us, we all got super excited. We had heard of VHS board games like Nightmare and Atmosphere, but we have never seen one or played one in person. Even though this one looked to be completely homemade, it had some frightening artwork on the cover. And when we opened up the box to see the actual game, it was as thick as a cutting board, and just as heavy too. The board was covered in zigzagging pathways, all stemming from one corner of the board and arriving at the center, where a pop-up structure of a cabin was marked with the word, Home. Since it was a four-player game, each corner of the board had a starting place, and we each got a figurine token for a playing piece. Each piece was small than metal, in the shape of a child with the painting colors smeared and faded, 
Each child's mouth was open in a scream. The four corners were all different from a graveyard to a forest to a haunted mansion to a slaughterhouse. The objective of the game seemed to be for each of us to get to the middle of the board or to home, from whichever frightening origin point that we had started from. A simple, four-sided die with the numbers 1 through 3 pushed you forward, while the forest side would send you one step back. Every path moved through other parts like a maze and interacted with its origin point surroundings. Whether it was a path through the forest leading to a dead end or a hallway in the slaughterhouse into a meat locker, you had to pay attention to your path because of the other element of this game. While your player was trying to get home, there is an additional figurine that moved on its own across the board trying to catch you. I read the back of the box and it sounded like the inner workings of the board were filled with gears similar to a watch. They were powered by negative and positive magnets, which were the individual pieces in board, and they charged up whenever they were near each other. The villain figure must be more attracted magnetically to certain other figures, which would make the choosing of our pieces all the more important. But how could I tell? The VHS came into play, acting as a sort of hour-long timer counting down. If you didn't get home before the timer ran out, you were locked out, but you wouldn't be alone. The figurine that chased the players was in the shape of a dark, cloaked man with long, stringy hair. As far as board game tokens go, he was the scariest one that I had ever seen. I didn't even want to look at him, which made the VHS that much more unsettling. That stringy-haired man filled the screen, which was half-covered by shadows. You can only really see parts of the side of his face, and his eyes, which were white as milk. When he spoke, it sounded like glass-breaking. He introduced himself as the Harvester of Souls, and he looked forward to getting to know ours. The Harvester welcomed us to the game, which was called Don't Look Behind You. He instructed us to take our places on the board as the timer was about to begin. It glowed in red at the bottom of the screen. One hour. We had one hour to get to the center of the board. We took turns with the die, each rolling and making our first moves. Brad started. He was in the dark forest. Then it was Jeff who was in the graveyard. Then Davey who had the slaughterhouse. And me who landed on the haunted mansion. My first roll brought me three places forward, and the closest to home. My token was in a curving hallway, leading towards a staircase to the first floor. And then the harvester's piece moved. Three places. It was going towards Brad in the forest. We all oohed and odd at the untouched token. The harvester spoke through the TV, asking if the player was afraid of forest. Brad, caught off guard, looked to us and shrugged. The harvester said that he was about to be. Brad rolled again, a three. He landed on the card pickup. He nervously turned the card over and found an image of the young boy that was on his token. The boy was walking through the dark forest on a slim, barely lit path. The harvester was amongst the shadows. Half his face lit by moonlight sprinkled through the trees. But his face, what we could see of it, was in that silky porcelain, 
It was bark-like, like rotted wood. But his eyes were still white, and they glared at the boy. At the bottom of the card, the words, Don't look behind you were written. And down on the board, we realized that the harvester's token had moved, and it was now headed towards Brad. Brad got angry, though it felt more scared than anything. Brad stared at the card. I could see how uneasy it made him. He looked over his shoulder, checking behind him. Jeff called him out on it, and we all laughed. And then it was Jeff's turn. His token was walking down the path between the graves, but he had landed on an empty one, which meant that he had lost a turn. Then it was Davy, and he was making his way through the bleeding out room of the slaughterhouse. We continued on through several turns, with each of us making our way through the frightening locations. The harvester was on the screen the entire time, staring down at us, watching. It really felt like he was. The one eye that we could see seemed to track whoever was playing. It could even detect a smile here and there when one of us would choose to go left instead of right, down a fork in our pathway. The harvester's token caught Brad in the darkest part of the forest. As it did, his voice came over the screen, announcing Brad was no longer in the game. Brad sat back in a huff. What a gip. His token tipped over. Jeff was the next one to land on a card pickup. To get through the graveyard, he had to walk through a mausoleum, and he landed on a bad square. The card showed Jeff's token walking through the halls of the mausoleum. One coffin had been pulled out of the wall, its lid opened. The harvester was peeking out from inside, half his face hidden by shadow. The visible half had been zombified, rotted, and grotesque. At the bottom of the card again, the words, Don't look behind you were written. Suddenly, Brad pointed behind Jeff and screamed. Jeff spun, panicking to see. But nothing was there. Brad was only pranking him. Jeff had turned, though, and looked. Down on the board, the harvester's piece was now turned towards Jeff. Within two turns, Jeff's token had been caught, and that frightening voice came over the TV again. He was no longer in the game. It was just Davy and I now. I was nearing the front door of the haunted house, and Davy was almost out of the slaughterhouse. We were coming from opposite ends of the board, and almost in the safety of the home finish point. The harvester's next turn brought his token between mine and Davy's. He could reach one of us, but the other would likely make it home. He decided to turn toward my little brothers. Davy rolled and landed on the final card pickup before the front steps of home. He lifted up the card and stared at the image. It was his token, the little boy, walking through the slaughterhouse. Behind him, the harvester had a chain metal apron on. He carried a large electric bone saw in his hands. He was covered in blood. His one visible milky white eye was aimed at the little boy in the image. And with that, the harvester's token was right behind my brother's. The voice whispered out from the screen, Don't look behind you. Davy screamed, spinning around and staring up at the TV. The harvester was looking down at him. A crooked smile had formed. 
My dad knocked on our door, scaring us all even further. He told us that it was time to go to bed. Davy snapped off the TV, vanishing the harvester's face from our visions just as he was beginning to outright laugh. We all decided to call it a night. We turned off the lights and climbed up onto my bunk. Davy was already under his covers, only his face poking out. He didn't look okay. Jeff packed the game up and put it away, and then him and Brad tucked into their sleeping bags. The room was pitch black and all I could hear was four sets of hushed breathing. Everyone was still scared. I could tell that we were all still thinking about the game. It really was creepy, and some of the things the harvester said it felt personalized. I knew that Davey had a fear of slaughterhouses. He had seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in one of our first club meetings, and he still hadn't recovered. I also knew that Jeff hated graveyards because of his grandpa's funeral, and Brad hated Forrest because he had been lost during a childhood camping trip. We were all scared of plenty of things though. I knew that I was only trying to scare myself now and I tried to think of the movies that we had watched, but my mind kept inserting the harvester's face and voice into my memories. Everything kept leading back to him. And then I got really nervous. I remembered one time when Brad had brought over a Ouija board for the club. It was kind of fun and I didn't really believe in it, but I wanted to. I was thinking about the one rule that Brad had made clear that we needed to follow when we had finished playing with it. When we were done, we had to end the conversation. My mind took that rule and ran with what we had just played. We never finished the game. I rolled over, looking out my window now. The wind was picking up, and it caused the light from the street lamps to flicker against the glass. My eyes picked up a shape. A human shape in the shadows of our next-door neighbor's hedges. I saw a sliver of that porcelain skin, and then it was gone. Was that him? Had I seen the harvester? Stop it, you're scaring yourself. Just go to bed. I rolled onto my back and shut my eyes. It felt like this was going to be a long night. I finally drifted off. The sleep was restless, filled with nightmares of long hallways with many doors, all darkened by the silhouette of the harvester. In my last dream, the static fuzz that accompanies the end of a VHS finishing its recording, it drifted in. And then I was awake in bed, laying on my back. I could hear the TV fuzz clearly. Someone had been watching something. I rolled onto my side and looked down. The TV was that static fuzz, but I saw Davy's foot, his Freddy Krueger-themed socks, pulled through the TV screen. My heart stopped and I shot back in bed. I was pressed into the top corner of my room, unable to see the screen. I didn't want to. Had I just seen what I thought I'd seen? Was that actually his foot? I knew that I saw a sock, but had it really been pulled through the screen? I gathered my courage and crawled back to the edge of my bunk and looked down. Jeff and Brad's sleeping bags were empty. Between them, the board game was set up. All the pieces were placed where we had left off. I was so scared to look down and see what was in my brother's bed. 
Disturbing visions of the harvester, stringy hair, long, gangly arms wrapped around Davy was all that I could think of. But I peeked under. His bed was empty too. I was the only one in the room. I climbed the ladder down from my bunk and inspected the board. The pieces were in the same places, but they were different. They didn't look like random little boys anymore. They looked like Brad, like Jeff, like Davy, and like me. We were all there. I reached out to pick up my piece, but felt a shock spark through me. The room got really bright, and I realized the TV screen was now only inches from my nose. And the next second, I felt my body passing through something like a flurry of snow. And then a late November wind rushed overhead. It got dark. My face was pressed into dirt. I was cold. I got up, feeling four walls of dirt around me. My eyes adjusted and I realized that I was in an empty grave. It was about six feet high, but I could reach the top and pull myself up. I looked around and saw I was in the graveyard from the game. The same mausoleum sat in the distance. The one that Jav didn't make it through. Oh my god, I was in the game. I leaned against the wall of the grave, wondering how this could all be. What was I doing here? But then it hit me. Jeff was here, somewhere in the mausoleum. If I could find him, maybe that was how I would get out. Or maybe I would be led into a trap. Either way, I didn't want to wait in this grave any longer. I climbed out. The grave beside me had a hole dug up through the center like something had pulled itself out. The gravestone read, Harvester, 1691, to blank. I thought back to Jeff in the graveyard. While playing, his character had picked up a key in the rose bushes near the entrance to the mausoleum. It was what had allowed him to get inside and try to leave the property. I needed that key. I set off across the graveyard, wind whistling between the stones and the shadows taunting me. I felt like I was being watched from every angle, silhouettes of the harvester peeking out from behind tombs. I made my way towards the garden on the side of the mausoleum. It took me a few minutes of nervous searching, but I found a bronze key with a skull for the bow, sticking up from the soil like a flower. I unlocked the back door of the mausoleum and entered. Slivers of moonlight heightened the edges of hundreds and maybe thousands of sealed coffins in the walls. The mausoleum all of a sudden seemed so much bigger inside. The crying echoed through the endless hallways. It sounded like Jeff. I hoped it was. I followed the crying, and it led me down several hallways before I heard it coming from the walls. I checked one of the seals and saw that it had Jeff's name written on it. I pulled the handle and yanked the coffin out. There was a thudding coming from inside and the lid had burst open and Jeff was screaming and gasping for air. He hugged me when he saw me, and I helped him out of the coffin. He was shaking uncontrollably, and said that the harvester had taken him and pulled him through the TV. The next thing that he knew, he was stuck in that coffin. He was crying far too loudly, and the sounds were echoing through the hallways. I quieted him down, and told him that we needed to get out of that front door. We moved through one aisle and then another, and another, 
Finally, we were back in the main hall. I saw the front door way down at the other end, and we had rushed towards it. Somewhere behind us, the harvester screamed out, Don't look behind you. I felt Jeff's body shift to turn back, but I yanked him forward and told him to keep staring straight ahead. We kept running. The voice screamed out again, this time closer, but we kept on running and got to the entrance as the words bellowed behind us. We burst through the door and slammed it shut. Nothing followed. No banging on the door or screaming. Silence. We turned around to see that we were now facing a wall of tall, dark trees. It was the forest that Brad didn't make it through. You could barely see five feet into the woods. It was just too dark. How the heck were we supposed to make it in here? Then Jeff remembered that there was a flashlight near the entrance to the woods. At the beginning of the game, Brad had rolled it to a mist, getting it by one digit. We could avoid that in person, though. There was an entrance a few yards to the left that led into a pathway that disappeared a few feet in. We jogged over to it and found the flashlight sticking up from the bushes. It worked and gave us a larger window of vision through the woods. We moved down the path, which was barely that. It was only about a foot wide and filled with gnarled roots and branches. We had no idea how we were going to find Brad. But he was lost in the darkest parts of the woods, though. That's where we were headed. Jeff and I got to what felt like the middle of the forest. It was pitch black all around us. I stopped Jeff and turned off the flashlight. It was like our eye sockets were cut. Everything went black. And then I heard it crying. Brad's. I turned the flashlight back on and we followed the crying. It got closer, but so did the sounds of twigs breaking somewhere behind us. I reminded Jeff not to look back, no matter what. Finally, my flashlight hit Brad. He was wrapped up in the vines, which we had to break and pull apart to get him free. The twigs behind us kept on breaking. We got Brad up and moving and hustled them down the path. I had no idea where I was leading them, but I hoped that it would be wherever my little brother was. A scream echoed out through the forest. It was the harvester, saying that he was coming to get us, and to turn around and see. I yelled not to listen to him and to keep running. His voice kept yelling and getting closer and closer. We could feel this cold breath on our necks, and then we all fell forward. We slid across a slit tiled floor. We were all immediately soaked in a foul mix of innards and blood. We were in the slaughterhouse in what appeared to be a spare parts room, or maybe it was for bleeding out. All I could see were a million shades of red covering the walls and floor, and my best friend's pale, sickly faces in the midst. Bone saws of all kinds screeched out, echoing through the vast warehouse from some not-too-distant room. I could hear Davy's whimpers under them. I put my hand down to lift myself up, and found it pushing into the stomach of what appeared to be a pig. Vomit rose in my throat. As I was pulling my hand out, I felt my hand grip onto something hard and handle-like. It was a large knife. I remembered back to Davy playing and just missing landing on a square with a blade that he would have picked. 
I threw up anyway, but held the knife tight. Jeff and Brad got up with me, and we peeked out of the doorway. The hallway looked to be never-ending, impossibly far into the distance and lined with doorways. It was filled with small piles of body parts of animals and people. I saw the upper torso and head of a woman resting atop the body of a hog at the peak of one mound. The bone saws continued to screech out. It was almost unbearable. But I kept hearing Davy's low screams and yells under them. I rushed down the hallway trying to follow the sounds. Brad and Jeff were several steps behind, clutching each other the way that I did with the knife held in front of me. The screaming got closer, but so did the bone size. Don't look behind you, echoed out above them. It felt like they were going to be in the next room we passed, but I saw Davy instead. He was locked in a rectangular cage at the bottom of a pile of loose body parts. I rushed into the room, inspecting the lock to get my brother out. The key. I pulled it out and found that it fit the lock perfectly. The cage snapped open, but as it did, the floor under it gave out. Davy and a large pile of extremities fell, dropping ten feet and landing in what appeared to be... Oh no. They landed in a living room. The floor was old wood, rotting the deterioration of a log-abandoned house. I had been in it only once before, but I knew it well. It was the old Wagner house, and it was said to be haunted. I had been dared to go inside and retrieve a photograph from the master bedroom upstairs. The only way in was through a basement window that had been barred and boarded up. So, that's where I started. I had gone through the basement, up and through the first-floor living room, and to the staircase. The second floor, I didn't make it past the hallway. As I was walking to the master bedroom, the attic door hatch popped open, and the ladder leading up slid down. I turned and ran back downstairs and out through the basement. I never got the photograph, and I lost the dare. But now here I was, looking down into the same living room. Jeff screamed behind me. The harvester was here. His voice shrieked into the room. Don't look behind you. I kept my eyes forward, grabbed Brad and Jeff and pulled them over the lid of the cage. We fell onto the living room floor of the Wagner house. I looked up and saw the harvester leaning over the cage. He pulled himself over to jump down onto us, but it all disappeared and became the ceiling of the living room. His voice echoed down to us, repeating those same four words. It all happened so fast. I didn't realize that I was laying right beside Davy. He didn't either. So when I grabbed him and we locked eyes, tears overwhelmed us. I knew that we didn't have much time though. So I picked us up and rushed Jeff and Brad to the basement staircase. We sprinted down into the dark cellar, squeezing between a massive ancient furnace and a wall. The window was just on the other side. It was a tight fit, but it led us through to the... Oh no, the window. The window was gone. It was all wall now. We were trapped. A metallic screech came from inside of the furnace. It sounded like a series of sharp blades scraping across metal. We were going to die down here. The four of us trapped like rats. Wait, no. 
There was one other way out. I remembered it from the first time that I saw the house. At the very top, under the highest arc, there was an attic window that was empty of glass or a frame. It led out onto a roof that could be easy enough to climb down. We just had to go upstairs to the... The drop-down staircase. The one that sent me running from the house a year ago. That was it. That was the way out. We would have to go up it. The metallic scraping got louder. I yelled for the boys to go back upstairs. We squeezed back out as the furnace started to rumble. Heat began emitting from it and the screeches got louder. Don't look behind you. We kept moving and got back up the staircase to the living room. We rushed back over the pile of body parts, slipping through the blood-soaked wood. Up the next set of stairs, I was leading with Davy's hand held tightly in mine. But I slowed down as we reached the second floor hallway. It was empty, quiet, and dark. The drop-down door was closed. Crap. We would have to lift each other up to pull it down. I led the boys forward. And then, from the bottom of the stairs, the harvester's words yelled up. Don't look behind you. Our necks stiffened, again, trying to contain the natural urge to turn. But we continued on. Suddenly, the drop-down door swung open and the ladder shot down. We all fell into each other, collapsing backwards. As we did, I looked up into the small, rectangular doorway in the ceiling. Light from a window was streaked across it. There it was, our way out. I pulled Davy up and yelled for Brad and Jeff to hold on tight. We formed a chain and climbed up the ladder into the vast attic. I could see the open window at the far end. It was still there. Davy tripped and pulled me down with him. My grip let out of the knife and it skittered forward. Jeff grabbed it quickly and him and Brad sprinted for the window. I got Davy up and made chase. Behind us, I could hear something large shambling up the drop-down ladder. It made me run faster. Brad and Jeff climbed out the window and reached in for us. I pulled Davy with me, but we both went through the window at the same time. I felt a cold hand wrap around my ankle. I looked down and saw the harvester's face glowing in the dark. His other hand was wrapped around Davy's ankle. He had us both. He was pulling and yanking us back down into the darkness of the attic. Davy's grip was loosening on the window, and I knew that he wasn't going to last any longer. I let go of the window and slid into the attic, knocking the harvester's grip from Davy's ankle. I yelled for them to run. The harvester landed on top of me, his stringy hair blocking out any light from the window. He leaned down, opening his mouth to bite when a sliver of metal slashed through the air. The harvester fell back, the handle of the knife sticking out of his neck. I felt three sets of hands grab my shoulders and yank me up through the window. Brad, Jeff, and Davy, they had saved me. I stood up outside and looked to the other side of the street. I could see home. The windows glowed outward warmly. It felt so different than the rest of this world. We rushed out along the roof to the edge of the rotted shingles. One at a time, we climbed down the pipe to land on the grass. Jeff, Brad, and Davy. My eyes were focused on the window. I kept waiting to see the harvester's face appear. Him climbing out and after us, but he didn't. It was my turn to climb down, but my eyes had never left the roof. As I was halfway down, 
I heard the front door of the house slam shut. Oh no, he was outside. I threw the key down to Jeff and yelled for them to run. I jumped the remaining five feet and took off across the street. From my peripherals, I could see the harvester was near, but I didn't dare look back. I ran hard but felt him gaining behind me with every step. That cold breath hit the back of my neck. Jeff and Brad were inside home now and Davey was just entering. They were all waiting for me. I heard the harvester's voice whispering over my shoulder. Don't look behind you, I'm right here. I'm right here. I kept running up the front walk into the door. I never looked back. The front door slammed shut behind me and cut off the harvester's voice. I shot up in bed. We all did. I was on the top bunk, Davey was back on the bottom bunk, and Jeff and Brad were in their sleeping bags. We all had the same knowing and horrified expression. No one said anything, but we all knew. The harvester was on the TV. The timer was just ticking down to zero. His voice creeped out from the screen and disappointed, saying that we had survived the game and to come back any time if we dared. But to remember, don't look behind you. The TV went to static fuzz again. It stopped and then started to self-rewind. I jumped down from my bed and ejected the tape. I pulled all the film out and tore it to shreds. We packed the board game back up and snuck out to the garage where we grabbed a can of kerosene and some matches. We took the board game out to a park nearby and lit it on fire in the empty public pool. We left it burning there. The next morning, we all played it off like it was a bad dream, even though Brad no longer had the large board game that he had showed up with. Him and Jeff left before lunch and Davey and I agreed we didn't want a TV in our room anymore, so we got rid of it. We now unplugged the one in the downstairs living room every night. We postponed the horror club indefinitely, and Davey and I are thinking of trying out baseball cards. The clinical trials of a new drug have some pretty terrifying results. Written by Cal is writing. I'm a medical doctor and a member at large of an FDA advisory committee for a new drug that's still going through trials, known as Omfrenal. A few weeks ago, I was checking my email when I saw a message from a colleague. I was very disturbed after reading the email, and I hope you see why. I've attached the email below. Dear Dr. Pierce, as you requested, what follows is the full, unabridged account of the incident that had occurred at Pulaski Hospital Center during the Phase 3 trials of Omfranol. The case concerns patient number 2365786, hereafter known pseudonymously as Mr. John Wade. My name is Dr. Evelyn Shuttle, M.D., a clinical psychiatrist and principal investigator during the section of the study involving Mr. Wade. I'm no longer affiliated with NeuroCorp, as I resigned immediately following the incident that I'm about to detail. Mr. Wade is a 43-year-old white male who suffers from paranoid schizophrenia ever since he was 17 years old. 
Mr. Wade suffers from classical positive symptoms of paranoid schizophrenia, including extremely vivid auditory and visual hallucinations. Since his diagnosis, he's had over a dozen major hospitalizations and several overdoses. He has been on numerous major antipsychotics including thiorazine and chlorpromazine, but none seem to have even a minor effect on his hallucinations. For over a year before his admission to the Pulaski Hospital Center, a maximum security forensic psychiatric facility, before his admission, Wade had worked on and off at his brother's lawn care business as an office aide. However, his employment came to an abrupt halt when he allegedly doused a fellow employee in gasoline before lighting the man on fire and sitting there while the victim burned. The man died at the scene of his wounds and Mr. Wade was committed to Pulaski to await his evaluation to find out if he was fit to stand trial for first-degree murder. According to Mr. Wade's brother, he had not been taking his medication for over a year. We approached Mr. Wade and his brother about an experimental treatment using a novel antipsychotic, Omphrenol. The drug at the time was still in the testing phases developed by Neurocorp, a pharmaceutical industrial concern specializing in innovative treatments for mental illnesses. In phases one and two, studies were conducted in Barbados. Omphrenol showed promising improvements in individuals with schizophrenia, whose symptoms failed to be treated with other antipsychotics. Mr. Wade agreed to participate in the double-blind study, and we scheduled him for an intake interview with our team of mental health professionals. There in the small, sterile interrogation room, he sat in a straitjacket as we began to record. We asked him to describe what he saw and heard. He reported that he would constantly hear a high-pitched, collective screaming, like a burning bus full of children, sometimes of something else. When we asked him to elaborate, he was terse, except to say, the watchers. He reports that these screams would persist day and night, Sometimes, Mr. Wade reported seeing visual hallucinations of the entities that he referred to as the Watchers. When asked repeatedly to detail what exactly he meant by that, Mr. Wade simply repeated cryptically, as if my recitation. His works were with the Watchers, and with the Holy Ones were his days. When asked why he had doused the men in gasoline, he smiled. Rejoice. The man was wicked and the watchers did instruct me to smite him for his sins. For his sins were great and perverted of the innocents. We also interviewed his brother, Frank, his only living relative. John and I, our parents, were addicts in Boston. and They practically abandoned us in the street when we were both really young. And we were taken up by this boy's home, St. Eusebius. It was tough growing up in that home. The sisters were strict and sometimes sadistic, and they constantly would force us to recite passages from the Bible since we were like five years old. If we got one word wrong, it was a smack to the cheek with a wooden paddle. And those nuns could give Ted Williams a run for his money if you know what I mean. However, John was special, 
he did really well on those recitations, and he impressed the sisters when he could commit the entire book of Isaiah to memory, just in a week. Frank had brought John's Bible from the orphanage, a shabby Gideon International that had stained pages. This was John's most valued possession in the world. He asked me to bring it to him in prison. He flipped through the pages, and we could see drawings and writings feverishly scrawled into the margins. When we opened to the book of Ezekiel, the entire page was darkened with so much ink scribbling, page after page, that you could barely make out the text. Oh, yeah, Ezekiel was his favorite for some reason. He would spend all of his free time day and night reading the same passage over and over, even into adulthood. We then asked Frank to describe to us when John began to experience symptoms. When John turned 17, he suddenly dropped out of school. He was a wicked smart kid, even if he was a bit of the social outcast type. However, one day he just suddenly didn't show up to class. By then, I was already out of school and starting a job in New Haven, and I had gotten a call from the school. John hadn't showed up in over two weeks, and the school was concerned that he was truant. I drove over back to Boston to the apartment that I helped him pay for, and he wouldn't answer the door. I had an extra key, so I was still able to get in. I called his name over and over, and there was no answer. When I reached his room, I noticed that it was locked. I could smell something foul, and I feared for the worst. I busted in the door, and I saw him standing there naked. In the corner was where he went to the bathroom. That was what I had smelled. And then I looked around the room, and everything, the walls, the ceilings, the floors, was scrawled in what appeared to be blood. His blood, I later found out. He had been collecting it in bowls and then painting these weird, bizarre symbols with circles and other shapes in them, all over the room. I was so scared. John, I remember saying, John, what the heck? He turned around, and I remember seeing that he was smiling in his eyes, and his eyes were so big. He told me that he had been hearing voices in his head. They told him that they came from above and they told him the secrets of the universe or something. Anyways, that's when I knew I had to call the police. They strapped him to a gurney and took him away to Massachusetts State for several months. He came out and he was normal for a while, but then he stopped taking his medication. When I asked him why he told me that, it quieted the voices so he couldn't hear. I told him that that was the whole point. To not hear voices because that wasn't normal. And thus the cycle began. He would take his medication, be relatively normal for several months, stop taking it, start hearing the voices again that tell him to do some pretty terrible stuff, and then back to the hospital. And tell me about the incident involving the client at your lawn care business. Frank took a minute and stared deeply into midair. He continued. Well, he cleared his throat, looking uneasy. You see, with his condition, John couldn't keep a job for more than a few weeks. 
He's my brother, so I had to take him under my wing at my lawn care business. Sean was good with the paperwork, so that's what he did. One day, one of our hedge trimmers, Kyle, came in. John didn't know Kyle, and that was the first day that they had met. I was at my office when I suddenly had heard screaming. I ran into the front of the shop, and I saw that Kyle was on the floor, burning and writhing and screaming. It was horrible. I noticed that John was standing there, smiling with a container of gasoline in his hand. I screamed at him, What the heck did you do? He later told the police that some voice in his head told him that Kyle was impure or something, that he did stuff to kids, and that he needed to be purified. I'm telling you, my brother's not alright in the head. What was weird though was that I was watching the news coverage about John killing Kyle later in the day, and the media had discovered that what my brother had said about Kyle was true. He had been doing it for years in the trailer park. We started Mr. Wade initially on 50 milligrams of the treatment, twice a day orally starting on June 3rd. After a month of gradual improvement, we decided to increase the dosage to 100 milligrams. Mr. Wade showed an impressive, almost immediate improvement in his positive and negative symptoms, with a startling 80% improvement on the positive and negative symptoms scale. On the clinical, global impression schizophrenia, which rates schizophrenia from least severe at 1 to most severe at 7, Mr. Wade had scored a 7 on June 3rd and did 2 on July 2nd. Additionally, Mr. Wade's blood dopamine levels increased dramatically almost as soon as we had administered the treatment. Mr. Wade's hallucinations, what he had called visions, persisted, but he reported that the screaming had stopped. When we asked him what he heard now, he responded, Singing. I hear singing, not screaming. There was also a noticeable increase in the religiosity of Mr. Wade. He would spend almost all hours of the day reading his Bible and he appeared to pray. I conducted weekly mental health evaluations to track his progress. Mr. Wade continued to make significant neurophysiological improvements while on the treatment regimen. However, Mr. Wade continued to talk about his visions involving the Watchers. During one interview, I inquired about his visions. What do you mean by Watchers, John? John smiled cryptically. They're here. What do you mean by that, John? Mr. Wade sat in his chair confined by the straitjacket, and he raised his head. He was looking in my direction, but did not look me in the eye. It was like he was staring through me. No, behind me. Do you not see it? There's one standing right behind you. I instinctively turned around. Nothing. How often do you see these watchers? All the time, they follow me. Despite all of his improvements, Mr. Wade's auditory and visual hallucinations continued. While hospitalized, we encouraged Mr. Wade to take up painting as a relaxing activity, but it also provided us a qualitative analysis of his mental well-being. His paintings were interesting to say the least. The hospital had an old television set with some Bob Ross VHS tapes. 
We supplied Mr. Wade with the supplies, including oil paint, brushes, canvases, and linseed oil, and left him alone in the room with the guard outside for him to unwind and paint. An hour later, we came back into the room. John, I believe you've been working on some pretty pictures for us. Yes, Dr. Shoto, John said, grinning. He turned the canvas around. Jesus Christ. The guard behind me let out. It took me a moment to register what he had painted. What is that, John? John paused, tilting his head in confusion, his smile turning into a frown. What? You don't like it, Dr. Shoto. Um, John, maybe we can call it a day. After John was ushered back into his room by the guard, I picked up the canvas. On the canvas, Mr. Wade had painted what I can only describe as these bizarre beings, with circular bodies covered with numerous wings and eyes, like some eldritch, nightmarish abomination. Father Coughlin was the hospital chaplain, an old man in his 80s who ministers to the religious needs of the patients at Pulaski. Father Colkin also held weekly mass services to Catholic patients, and Mr. Wade was known to regularly attend. A week after our last evaluation, Mr. Wade attended mass. It started as a routine mass service. There was only one other person in the room, a fellow patient as the guard, being an observant Jew, chose to remain outside of the chapel. As Father Calkin's back was turned to the room in the blessing of the bread and wine, Mr. Wade quietly got up from the pew and walked towards Father Calkin. According to the witness, Mr. Wade began to take out a metal container hidden in his hospital robes. We later found at the scene that this was a container of the linseed oil that Mr. Wade had smuggled from his painting session. In one swift motion, even before Father Coughlin could realize what was about to incur, Mr. Wade splashed the entire container of linseed oil on the priest, grabbed the candle at the altar, and set the priest on fire. Father Coughlin fully combusted in less than a second. The witness reported Father Coughlin screaming in pain for a few seconds before his body collapsed to the ground, still burning. The guard heard the commotion and rushed in, but it was far too late. When the fire and paramedics arrived, Father Calkin had expired at the scene. Wade was promptly sedated, straightjacketed, and sent to his room. I remember arriving at the chapel, seeing the black char marks where Father Calkin's body had been, and thinking, how could a human being do this? I later questioned Mr. Wade about this. Why did you kill Father Calkin? He slowly smiled. In a calm voice, he responded, slowly sounding out his words syllable by syllable. Father Calkin was wicked. The watchers told me to do it, to purify him of his sins. He needed it to be made pure through fire. What sins are you talking about? His laptop, Dr. Shoto. The Watchers know about what the Father sees and does. They saw him. They illuminated him. His actions are impure. He was so bright when he did Mass. He was practically shining. 
burning. He began to quietly cackle to himself before continuing. I served the watchers, and they commanded me to purify him. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him. O gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. Later that night, as I finished some emails, I decided to do a bit of research on fire, particularly the religious meaning behind it, given Mr. Wade's inclinations. I wasn't raised religious growing up, so religion was not a strong suit. Admittedly, I was fascinated by what I found. Evidently, fire as a symbol of purity is present in almost every major religion. In Zoroastrianism, the ancient faith of the Persians, fire was revered as a symbol of truth and purity as fire cannot be polluted. In Hinduism, fire is used in various religious rituals as a mediator between humans and gods. The ancient Romans had a sacred fire dedicated to the goddess Vesta, with the chaste versions tending to it to prevent the hearth from going out. In the Hebrew Bible, God often spoke through fire, first in a burning bush and then in a pillar of fire. Fire was used as a symbol of purity, but also divine wrath. Fire was described as coming out of the presence of the Lord, which consumed those that invoked divine judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah were consumed by fire and brimstone. In the New Testament, Christ is said to arrive to baptize by the Holy Spirit in fire. And in the book of Hebrews, God is described as a consuming fire. And then I realized it. Whatever Mr. Wade sees in his visions, he views a fire as a vehicle of purity. Somehow, in the voices in his head... And the figures in his visions, they tell him that his two victims were impure, perhaps having committed transgressions of some kind. In this developing pyromania, Mr. Wade thought that he was helping them by lighting them on fire to purify them. I understood why Mr. Wade thought lighting Kyle on fire was logical in his twisted mental calculus. But why did he kill an old priest? Suddenly, I received a message. A colleague of mine had notified me that the police had uncovered 50 gigabytes of inappropriate information in Father Calkin's laptop. There were dozens of reports of bad things happening by Calkin in parishes that he administered to previously in Boston. And he was transferred to the hospital after the fact by the Archdiocese. The question lingered in my psyche to this day. How did Mr. Wade know about Father Calkin? A week later, as I was getting to evaluate Mr. Wade, the guard took me aside at the door and let me know that he's been hearing things coming from Mr. Wade's room late at night. He's been just facing the corner of the room, chanting and bowing. It's disturbing. I don't know, but some of the words sound like, like what they taught us to recite in the Kiddush in Hebrew school. I don't know how, but I think he knows Hebrew. Hebrew? What do you think he was saying? The guard chuckled. I'm not fluent. We only learned what we needed to say the prayers, and it's like... It's like the prayers that he's saying are almost similar. Mr. Wade isn't Jewish, is he? He doesn't indicate it on his file. 
Oh, definitely not. I don't know much of what he's saying, but one thing I do know for sure, whatever he's addressing, it's not Hashem. It's definitely not what we would call God. I immediately headed to the CCTV monitoring room and reviewed the camera footage of Mr. Wade's room. In the playback, Mr. Wade would sit still on his bed, staring blankly at the corner of the room. After three hours, he would suddenly get up, walk towards the corner and kneel. I turned on the audio and it was some kind of ritual. As he was chanting, his body would begin to sway, forward and backward. He would fold his hands and then raise them, palms forward. It was difficult to hear with all the white noise, but I could make out a quiet whispering. I strained to hear. Over time, whispers became more emphatic, more feverish, but it wasn't English. The words sounded harsh with uvular consonants. Almost immediately, I picked up the phone and called Frank. No, no, as far as I know, he only speaks English. On the camera in real time, Mr. Wade suddenly stopped, stood up and stepped back, and turned his head up to the ceiling. What happened next, I cannot explain empirically to this day. I'm gonna call you back, Frank. Something's happening with Wade. I ran down the hallway through the hospital to get to the wing where Mr. Wade was located. When I arrived, the guard quickly waved me over to the window on the door. There he was, just as I saw him on the camera. How I perceived the scene was this. Mr. Wade appeared to be floating. His feet six inches above the ground. His head tilted upwards. I nudged the guard. Are you seeing that? The guard nodded. I knocked on the door. Mr. Wade, Mr. Wade, what are you doing? But he did not answer. His eyes remained closed and his head tilted back. I looked at the guard. Open this door immediately. I can't, Dr. Shadow. We weren't expecting you this late, so I left my key with my partner who's on a smoke break right now. I need to get into the room, do you understand me? The guard lifted his walkie-talkie and messaged his partner. Um, 10.33, 10.33. Requesting immediate assistance to room 31A, block B, 10.33. Mike, get your butt over here. Hey, I said to the guard. Something's happening. Mr. Wade, still floating, abruptly lifted his head and began to shout as though in a trance. I have done everything you required. I have served you loyally. Please, let me see you. Let me understand all. Let me behold your splendor. Coincidentally, at that precise moment we felt an earthquake. The lights began to flicker. Mr. Wade's body began to shake and his eyes rolled back. His face grimaced and then turned into a smile. I see them. I see them. Mr. Wade began to laugh maniacally, raising his voice to a feverish pitch. The room continued to shake violently. It's beautiful. I see them. I see the burning ones. The burning ones. At that moment, we heard Mr. Wade scream. The lights suddenly went out for a few seconds before the backup generator had started. When the lights turned back on, Mr. Wade was lying face down on the floor still. The room had a sickly sweet odor of burning metal, 
which we thought at first was due to uh, the damage in the electrical wiring due to the earthquake. By then, the other guard was running down the hall. We unlocked the door and immediately rushed over to Mr. Wade's side to check on him. He was unresponsive, and when I checked for a pulse, I realized that he no longer had one. One of the guards phoned the paramedics, and I turned Mr. Wade's body around and then stepped back in horror. Where Mr. Wade's eyes should be, there were only remains of charred tissue. Almost nothing was left. I touched his hollow eye socket and instantly recoiled as if it was still burning hot. There wasn't any blood. His eyes had combusted so spontaneously that all the blood had evidently evaporated instantly. That was the metallic odor that we had noticed. I could hear one of the guards begin to vomit outside. Dr. Shoto, Mike, the second guard had asked. He was a large, muscular man but he was trembling like a leaf. What the heck could have done this? I don't know. I need to note a particularly disturbing phenomenon that the reports revealed several months after. The autopsy revealed that Mr. Wade's optical lobe, particularly in the area of the primary visual cortex, had simply been inflamed. It had practically dissolved. Another case where an entire lobe simply dissolved to this extent has never been recorded. Later that evening, we were all called into an emergency research faculty meeting. I immediately began to brief the team on the fate of Mr. Wade. How his eyes had apparently spontaneously combusted at such high heat. I stated that considering the severe side effects Mr. Wade was experiencing in the weeks that led to his death... It would be in no way ethical for us to possibly continue the Omphrenol study. I made the case that the drug was too dangerous for the safety of the patients in the study, and that we needed to halt all trials immediately. Dr. Franklin, the chief of the investigation, paused and took off his glasses. Dr. Shadow, we concluded Mr. Wade's treatment three months ago. So we can tell you that this now since it wouldn't affect the double-blind nature of this experiment. When we assigned the patients to the treatment groups, Mr. Wade was put in the control group for the entire duration of the treatment. We decided to allow you to continue psychiatric evaluation of the patient, without telling you so that you could better detail his mental condition without bias. He was given the placebo the entire time, I asked, hearing my heart pounding. Yes, Mr. Wade wasn't on Omphrenol when the incident occurred. He never was. When I returned home after one in the morning, I couldn't sleep, so I decided to do some late-night filing work. There were stacks of MRI brain scans of these study participants. One caught my eye. You see, normally in patients with schizophrenia... We would see a smaller brain volume and reduction in cortical volume and thickness, most noticeably in the frontal and temporal lobes. And most notably, we would see atrophy in the hippocampus and thomalus. We noticed these symptoms to varying degrees in all patients in the study. However, this particular brain scan showed a perfectly healthy brain. No shrinkage and no atrophy. No visible markings of pathology at all. 
no schizophrenia or any other identifiable mental illness for that matter. This brain was the only one in that pile that didn't exhibit those telltale signs of a patient with schizophrenia, so I assumed it was a clerical error on the part of the intern. I then glanced at the name of the patient on the scan. Wade John. I sent in my resignation letter to NeuroCorp the following day. I live in a town ruled by skinwalkers, written by Drekanox. Hey, you ready? Dan asked. Yeah, I said, as I was finished loading the back of the truck up. I had only moved into town a year back. It wasn't even something that I had been planning for. But the rising housing costs where I grew up made me want to move somewhere else rather than go back to crash with my parents. Lo and behold, when I even managed to get a job at a decent company, and they offered to help with moving costs to join one of their branches. So, here I was. At least I thought at the time that this was a decent enough company. It was a charity, though I had to admit that at the time I didn't notice they seemed to have a lot of things for a nonprofit. Honestly, looking back, this should have been the first red flag to appear, but I never paid it any mind. Big mistake. So, let's go then, you rookie, Dan said. Dan was a couple of years older than me, but had been nice enough during orientation and what all. Our current job was one that would take us to a city, and we were setting up a camp for homeless people. I mean, it was a well enough cause, though something did weigh on my mind. Dan, do we really need to go so far for this? I asked him again. I mean, we were going a pretty long ways off. The trip itself would take a little over two days. I mean, granted, we would be paid for all the hours, and the company paid for our hotel stays as well. But I mean, why go through all that difficulty? A nearby city, one much closer than the one proposed by our company, was only about two hours off. And I mean, it wasn't as if where we were going was much bigger either. Nah, it's complicated, kid. But we really just want to try to expand our reach. You know, grow the company. Dan said. The same as when I had asked him last time about it. Oh, come on. I wouldn't worry too much about it. Let's just focus on getting some of these people the help that they need. He flashed me a quick smile and then began talking about football. And soon enough, I had forgot about the question and our up-and-coming job entirely. The camp as it was went well enough 
with us doing quite a good job if I do say so myself. At least I thought so. It mainly involved giving out clothing and food. By now though, it was time for us to leave. And as we began to pack up and get ready to set back to our home base, I noticed something odd. Um, Dan, are we taking some people back with us? I asked, confused. I hadn't been told anything about this. Three people in total, two men and a woman, were riding along back with us in the back of the car. Oh yeah, sorry, I forgot to mention it. They've got some issues, which I think that we can deal with better back at home, Dan said. Then don't worry about it. They've all already agreed to it. So really, it's no biggie. No biggie, huh? I was definitely a bit suspicious now. But when I did take the time to talk to the three of them... It was obvious that they were there on their own volition. So I thought, alright, whatever. But I did notice something off. The normally extroverted Dan didn't go out of his way at all to talk too much with the other people. It was as if he was actively trying to avoid them for some reason or another. That said, after driving for a while, we were reaching the last leg of our journey. The town was coming back into sight. Though, as I was beginning to dream of going back to my bed, Dan tapped me on the shoulder as we came to a halt. I sat up a little and jolted and tried to blink the sleep away. And we were practically out in the middle of nowhere. Come on, he whispered to me as he opened the door quietly and beckoned for me to step outside of the van. I was confused, but in my drowsy haze after just waking up, I didn't really think too much about it as I got out of my seat and got out of the van. Oh, what's up, Dan? What do you want? Why are we stopped? I'd asked him. He put a finger to his lips and beckoned me to follow him. Once we are about ten minutes away from the vehicle, he told me to crouch down and be quiet. I had to know, though. What is going on? I asked him again. It looked like we were still two hours away from the town's border. He put a finger to his lips again. Just stay quiet for now, will you? It was then that his head twitched, as if he had suddenly seen something out of the corner of his eye. I looked in the same direction that his eyes led, but I spotted nothing. Until a minute later, when I saw the silhouette of what looked like a dog, or far more likely a wolf. I had realized. What's up with this? I asked. He put a finger to his lips once again, and he hissed at me this time. Don't you know when to keep quiet? No. Tell me what's going on, Dan, I said. He glared at me, but he seemed to soon realize that 
I was only going to keep making a ruckus if you didn't say something and tell me what was really going on. Alright, alright, just quiet down. Do you know what a skinwalker is? He asked me. I paused. I scratched my head. Um, no. It's an urban legend, that's what it is, Dan said. At least I thought so too. They're kind of like vampires, I guess you could say. They're supposed to be people who betrayed their families for immortality. And they walk around wearing the skins of their victims, which usually ends up being animals. You'll find all sorts of different stories about them if you go and look on the internet. They have other powers too. Mimicking voices of their victims, which is especially creepy. Trust me, you don't want to hear it in person. He shuddered a bit. Well, what's this got to do with anything? I asked. Oh, come on, how do you not catch on by now? Long ago, this land used to belong to a Native American tribe. Dan continued on. As you can imagine, they weren't at all very happy to give it up when the colonizers had arrived. Our side, I guess you could call it, realized that they were going to lose. And because of that, they made a deal with the devil. Or what devils are to the people that live around these parts? They invited some of the natives to a discussion in this area, and then they agreed to let the skinwalkers in. I told you they were like vampires, right? They can't go onto someone's property without a formal invitation. A bead of sweat rolled down the back of my neck. I looked out at the horizon again. There were more wolves out there now. In exchange for getting rid of the natives, the original founders gave these skinwalkers blanket permission to wander into town and any house within its territory, Dan said. And if they wanted to, they could get into our houses and kill every single one of us. They won't though, so long as they're fed enough. I then soon realized why he had brought those people along with him, and why we had gone so far to pick up these certain homeless people, so that little attention would be paid if they were to disappear suddenly one day out of the blue. Before he could stop me, I was sprinting back towards the vehicle. What do you think you're doing? You want to get yourself killed. You have no idea. He screamed behind me. But I ignored him. And I soon got into the driver's seat. Turned the key. Thank goodness he had left it in the ignition. And I began to move the truck to get out of the area as soon as possible. The skinwalkers were closing in on me though. When I looked again... They no longer looked like the dogs or wolves from before, or even animals in general. 
they now looked like the misshapen creatures that they really were. I could tell, given the odd way that they were moving. As I slammed on the accelerator, I heard a loud thump on the roof of the truck, and then another loud crash to the side of me. One of them had gotten onto the roof of the car, but had soon fallen off. I turned my head for a brief second to look outside the window, and when I did, I saw it. There was a monster out there, running on all fours, somehow keeping up with me, even though it must have been going about 60 miles an hour. From glancing at it, it looked like a skeletonized human, kind of like those pictures of people who have nearly been starved to death, turned up to level 11, wearing the fur of a wolf on its back. In the rearview mirror, I could see two more of them trailing right behind me. I gulped, looked back out onto the road, and slammed the accelerator even harder, praying that I would make it out of this. Eventually, after a while of driving, it looked like they'd either had enough of chasing me with no result to gain, or they had reached the boundary of whatever limit they could cross. However, it wasn't until the sun finally rose again that I finally took the time to breathe a sense of relief. I didn't even stop near the closest rest stop, gas station, whatever. I didn't want to risk it. I was too worried that it also fell into the jurisdiction of the skinwalkers. I really had no idea what their true boundaries were. It was only when it was closer to midday, and I was nearly falling asleep at the wheel driving, that I decided to stop and take a break. I told the others who were in the van, who were quite confused by this point, to get out. From pure exhaustion, I think I slept for a whole day after that, and I told the others that it had all been cancelled and that they had to go back to their own hometown. I tried forgetting about the place as much as I could, and for a while, honestly, it seemed like it had worked. Moving on, I got a new job at a different company. It wasn't the best, but it would do. Pay wasn't as good as the earlier one either, but hey, I never had to deal with supernatural creatures either, so I'll take it. I even began saving up for a down payment for a house. Things were really looking up at the time. One day, though, curiosity got the better of me, and I asked around about the town. To my surprise, no one seemed to have heard anything about it, or heard from anyone living in it ever since, well, the incident. Anyone who had gone to investigate seemed to never return. It's given me a horrible feeling. Did I end up costing the lives of everyone in that town? Or is it that the skinwalkers didn't kill everyone there, but they simply guard it so that no one can get in or out?
I don't know which is worse, but I have no desire to find out. I can't even name the town. I don't want someone out there coming to hunt me in retribution if they have ties to the place. Let me give you a warning though. I think if you drive close to where I'm talking about, you'll realize what the town's name is. All I can say is for your own safety, please stay as far away as possible from it. The ghost of an American soldier follows me home at night. Written by Joy of Watches. In November of 2018, I moved from my cozy two-bedroom apartment in Toyama City into the town of Arara Fuqui. It wasn't a voluntary decision. These things happen a lot in Japan. Most of my co-workers have transferred at least seven or eight times. The company operates dormitory-style apartment buildings for the younger, single employees to live in at a very low cost. But I have always preferred to separate my home life from work. The expenses, of course, significantly higher. But the trade-offs are worth it. The trip wasn't overly long. About 90 minutes by car. Aurora City is in the north of Fuqui. It shares a border with Ishikawa Prefecture, which separates Fuqui from Toyama. It wasn't what I had hoped for. I would have preferred to live further south, Fuqui City or at least Sakai, somewhere with a little more semblance of a civilization. But the order to transfer was given at the last minute, and beggars can't be choosers. The apartment was built sometime in the 1960s. Old school Japanese, the kind that looks pretty on the television, but is actual hell to live in. Drafty, no insulation. Tatami floors that had been constantly cared for, lest mold start creeping in. The unit consisted of only six rooms, with the landlord, a gentle woman of at least 90, living on the top floor. Her name was Mrs. Ori, but I will speak more of her later. The nearest grocery store was a 15-minute drive, but an old family mart down the street stocked most of what I needed to get by. Other than that, however, there was nothing to see but storm clouds and rice fields, neither of which fit my fancy. The only saving grace of this beleaguered hovel was its relative proximity to the local hot springs something that I intended to take full advantage of before these sightings occurred. Indeed, I have told no one of this, for I am certain no one would believe such an outlandish series of events. I elected instead to make a written record here, an account for others to find should they so inquire. On the 19th of November 2018, I reported for my first day at the Aurora office, Despite my unhappiness regarding the living arrangements, I found my new post to be quite enjoyable. I design aircraft and the facilities in Aurora are where prototypes are manufactured and tested. My new co-workers were eager to get to know me, and I spent the first week going from bar to hot spring to bar again. It was a warm welcome, 
and it gave me an excuse to stay out of that drafty old apartment. It is perhaps for that reason that my first encounter with Captain Olsen did not occur until the following week. It was well after 7pm by the time that I left the office on the 26th. I was the last one to leave for the evening and decided for the first time that I would go straight home for dinner and an early bed. It was raining, as it often does on the Sea of Japan side of Hanshu, a fat, globular rain that pummeled my poor 500-yen plastic umbrella. I started eastward at a brisk pace, eager to make good time. It was a flickering streetlight that first caught my eye. Not so unusual in these parts, but for the briefest of moments, I could have sworn that I had seen someone standing there. A mirage. Perhaps a trick of the light played against thick beads of falling rain. I shook my head and continued on until I encountered another, identical circumstance. A dying light, and a man standing underneath it. This time, I stopped on my tracks. I had come about a third of the way home by this point. The lights of Aurora were fading in my rear, and the distant neon green and blue family mart sign had just come into view ahead. Someone was there. I was sure of it. A thinning man of a similar height. At first, I thought it might have been one of the local farmers, or at least one of their elderly parents. In this part of Japan, it's not unusual for folks in their 70s or even older to keep at it, even if they can barely remember who they are. Worried, I called out to the man, but received no response. He stood perfectly still, like a statue in the storm. His eyes fixated on something in the distance, but I was blind as to what. After a few seconds of waiting, I called out again. Nothing. I approached the man cautiously. Aurora might be the safest place in the whole country, but it never hurts to be careful. The rain was so heavy that I could scarcely make out what was in front of me, but I was sure that he was still there. I called out one final time, and from the darkness shot a desiccated hand that seized my arm. The light above sparked for the briefest of moments, and in it I saw him. Dirty blonde hair, eyes bluer than the deepest sea, but his face was horribly disfigured. Long sheets of dead skin hung from his cheeks, and I was convinced that this crazed man had come to kill me. Shy, he rasped. Death. Looking back on it now, I was foolish to think that he would be speaking in Japanese, but I was frightened, and language was the last thing on my mind. I dropped my umbrella and screamed before tearing myself away from his grip. I am neither ashamed nor embarrassed to have run as fast as I did. I was scared. Who wouldn't have been? By the time that I made it to the family mart, I was sopping wet. The man had either given up on following me or hadn't bothered in the first place. For now at least, I was safe. The girl behind the counter was kind enough to let me put my shoes and socks to dry by a kerosene heater that she had kept in the back. 
I forked over a thousand yen for fresh underwear, socks, and a shirt, and then excused myself to the restroom to change. You can stay in the back while your clothes dry, the girl said. Nobody comes around here after dark anyway. I thanked her and retreated to the storage room, taking a seat by the heater and my wet clothes, and took stock of my situation. I am not a superstitious man, nor have I ever participated in any flavor of organized religion. My mind immediately tried to find the most reasonable explanation. A prank, perhaps. Organized by someone at the office to put me off. I tried to fit the square peg of my own prejudice into the round hole of the truth. And for a night, my mind made it work. I found my umbrella hanging from my front door the next morning. The 27th of November, 2018. It had to be some kind of jabe. I was certain. I showed up to work that morning ready to be greeted as a laughingstock. But my noon it was clear that no one at the company had anything to do with my strange encounter. It started to rain around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, just as it had the day before. I did my best to leave early, but my supervisor would be having none of it. And once again, I found myself at the last to depart. This time, he was waiting for me, a solitary figure standing beneath a streetlight. People passed by without even giving him a second thought, but he stood there then just as surely as I stand here now. I crossed the street, not sure what I was thinking. I felt angry, intimidated by this man, invisible to all others except for myself. I wanted to strike him crack him across the jaw for what he had done. A saner man might have run straight to the police or signaled someone else on the street for help. But in that moment, I felt nothing but the deepest malice in my heart. Something that evaporated the moment I got my first good look at him. His skin was severely burned and it took everything in my power not to upend the contents of my stomach and just the sight of him. His blue eyes were bloodshot and full of fear, and though the rain seemed to pass right through him, he trembled. Like his flesh, his garb was badly burned, but one needn't have a discerning eye to recognize a military attire. The leather jacket and cap, the khakis. He was no grunt, but an airman. I managed to stifle my fear and speak up. Who are you? I asked. Perhaps it was my accent. I never had a flair for English, and despite six years of studying it, I found myself struggling to string together even a simple sentence. The man's eyes fell to the ground. Oh, he said. Oh, I repeated. He turned pointing a flesh-stripped finger east toward my home and the mountains beyond. She, he said. This time, I knew he spoke not of death, but of a woman. She, I asked. Who is she? The soldier furrowed his brow in frustration, and in the next instant, he was gone.
I stood there for a time pondering what had just occurred. My heart took some comfort in the fact that it was not some prankster or hoodlum out to scare the new arrivals. And though I had no inkling as to what the shade wanted, I resolved in that moment to discover as much as I could. After that night, the sightings continued in a regular fashion. Under a streetlight, somewhere on the road between the office and my home. At each encounter, I attempted to communicate with them, but never got more than a finger pointed at the eastern mountains. She and O. At some point, maybe after the fourth or fifth meeting, he began following me home. It seemed perfectly natural. In fact, I had grown used to asking the old ghost questions between the streetlights, even though he could not answer. He never quite made it all the way to my apartment, stopping just outside of the family mart where he would point one final time to the east and then disappear. In what little free time that I could find, I began a cursory research of the Fuqui region during and after the war, but details were sparse. Most historians, contemporary and of the age, focused much more on the nuclear strikes performed on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It wasn't until the 27th of December, a full month later, that I caught a break. On that day, I decided to hop in the local and take a trip down to the History Museum in Fuqui City. I phoned ahead and scheduled an appointment with the curator, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Oshinao, who also happened to specialize in Imperial-era Japan. Fresh snow had blanketed the streets, but I managed to trot my way from the station without any major hiccups. For the sake of brevity, I won't go into full detail about the trip. Instead, I will sum up as best as I can the events of which I learned, though it may be unkind to those who would die to do so. On the 19th of July, 1945, the United States launched no less than 120 B-29 bombers from the Marianas on a course to Fuqui. They carried a payload of nearly 900 incendiary bombs and flew with orders to level the city's industrial capabilities. Like most cities in the region, Fuqui held little military importance and defenses were sparse. From the viewpoint of the Americans, the raid was a resounding success. Casualties were estimated at just under 1,600 individuals, and the subsequent inferno consumed more than 80% of the city, leaving the vast majority of survivors homeless. The Japanese defenders managed to down only three American bombers that night, a small price to pay in such a large war. Of the three bombers that had been destroyed, two of them came down in open fields just north of the city. The pilots and crews had been killed in the crash and their remains returned to the U.S. Army upon the closure of hostilities. The third, however, piqued my interest. According to Oshinawa, the third plane had been struck by anti-air artillery and was seen losing altitude on a trajectory north of the city. The aircraft never made it back to base, and as such was counted as a loss by the Americans. 
Unbeknownst to them, however, the Japanese had also failed to find the downed plane. No record of what had happened to the bomber or its crew was ever recorded. The curator must have thought me as some kind of mad modern treasure hunter, out to find old war relics. Perhaps I put Mr. Oshino off, as I'm sure it came off as if I cared only for the fate of a single American bomber, and not of the thousands of civilians killed or displaced as a result of the attack. Regardless, I thanked him, and sped directly home with the information fresh in my mind. I harbored no illusions of being able to locate the lost B-29 and his crew. Instead, I decided to focus on compiling a list of American soldiers, Martez missing in action in Japan. To my dismay, this proved to be no mean feat. Online archives at the time had no ability to filter by year of laws, nor could I separate European from Pacific theaters of war. All told, I spent nearly four weeks searching over 800 pages of names to find my missing 11. I'll be the first to admit that my search had become something of a major obsession. I became quite the regular at the local library, consuming books both on the history of the war and the aircraft that had served in it with equal fervor. To release the frustration, I purchased various model kits of not just the B-29, but smaller fighters like the F-4U and the P-51 as well. Within a month, my little tatami room had turned into a gallery of warfare. I couldn't get enough. My final list was compiled on the morning of the 1st of February 2019. I could hardly wait to get it to the soldier, who still followed me nightly from my office to the edge of the family mart. I printed the 11 names as cleanly as I could on a piece of paper that had come with my model B-29, and then went to one of the longest days of work in my life. I left the office at 6.30 in the evening, and encountered the soldier and Dre's street lamp just outside of the city. Excited, I reached into my briefcase and proudly presented the fruits of my labor. Is this you? I asked after reading the first name. The soldier was unresponsive. Undeterred, I went through each of the ten other names. Oh, he said after I read the last name. Oh, I asked again. The disappointment was probably written all over my face. I didn't know what I expected to happen. Something, anything. But in the end, there was only O and she. I looked back down on my list. Of the eleven soldiers, two of them had a last name starting with the letter O. Lieutenant Daniel J. Ott listed as radio man, and Captain Reginald T. Olson as the bombardier. I read both names to him again, but when no reaction was made, I threw the paper up in exasperation and walked away. Again, my surprise when not two minutes later. The old ghost was standing under another streetlight ahead of me, my list in his bony hands. Do you remember? I asked, drawing closer to him. His eyes were glued to the paper, and as I came to his side, 
I realized that it was not the names that he was looking at, but a picture of the model B-29 that was printed on the back. She, he said, pointing at the picture. She. Uh, the bomber, I asked. The bomber is she. The soldier nodded. She, he said, lifting his finger up and pointing to the east. I cannot describe the palpable excitement that I felt in that moment. The first step in understanding this grizzled soul had been more than two months coming. It only took a few seconds for me to realize, though, what a task had been laid out in front of me. East. How far east? The bomber had sat there for nearly three quarters of a century, and it had never been found. What hope did I, a single man, have at locating it now? I kicked my feet against the earth and cursed my own folly. It was the middle of winter. Even if I possessed the resolve to search for the crew, I was not about to prance around any snow-covered wilderness with little sense of direction and zero experience. In a word, I was screwed. I felt stupid. Stupid for allowing this apparition to dominate my every thought and action for so long. Stupid for believing that there had been some deeper meaning to me meeting this tortured soul. For a whole month after that night, I paid the soldier no heed. I thought that he would eventually get tired of trying, that he might just one day disappear from my life and never return. But every night he was there. The smoldered ghost standing under a streetlight, forever staring into the east. On the 3rd of March, 2019, I received a call from my parents that my grandfather had fallen seriously ill and wasn't expected to last more than a few days. I requested a week of personal leave and took the earliest flight I could from Komatsu to my home in Kobe. By the time that I made it to the hospital, however, he had already passed. It was the first loss in the family that I had lived to see. My dad had been especially close to his father, and seeing him break down as we entered the crematorium was all too much for me to bear. The body was moved with great respect into the furnace, and as I stood there watching my grandfather be turned to ash, my mind turned to the soldier. I thought of his blackened flesh, his charred clothes. I thought of the thousands of Japanese who had burned in the fires of Fugui in 1945. I thought of the American airmen, consumed by fire all around them as their bombers were shut down. All of them reduced to ash and dust, returned to the earth from whence they came. I spent four days in the home of my parents. At the end of the week, I booked a train ticket back up to Fugui and returned to my home in Aurora. The weather had warmed considerably in my absence. Spring was just over the horizon, and the long winter's thaw had begun. I had a full weekend still in front of me, and decided to spend it cleaning. I bought a glass display case for the model plants that I had built over the month's end. I set it between the window and the television. At a quarter after five on Saturday evening... I answered a call from the landlady, Mrs. Ori. She mentioned that a few folks from my company had come by, 
and they had left flowers for me to pick up upon my return. I offered to run upstairs to get them, but she was rather insistent on coming down to see me in person. Before I could refuse, she was already at my doorstep. An arrangement of lilies in one hand, and a glass Tupperware full of food in the other. You poor thing. She said as she removed her shoes at the entryway. For a woman who had been alive for close to a century, she was exceptionally well-spoken. She showed no signs of mental deterioration, and always wore a smile. I invited her in and offered her a seat at my dining room table. I took the flowers and set them by the window. Outside, the sun was setting, and the sky had turned a lush orange. Are you eating? She asked. I cooked up a few things for you. Why don't we have dinner together? A full stomach is the cure for the blues. That's what I always say. I couldn't help but smile at Mrs. Ori's kindness. It was the first hint of normalcy in my life since the previous week, and a welcome one at that. Hungry more for conversation than for food, I invited the kind landlady to stay for dinner, and together we shared the wonderful meal that she had prepared. At some point, I excused myself to use the restroom, and when I came back, I found Mrs. Ori standing quietly by the display case. Her eyes stared vacantly at the Model B-29 that I had built, and the warmth and vitality had drained from her face. I joined her in front of the glass and gazed at my collection. Mrs. Ori, I said after the silence had stretched too long. Hmm... She started. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just so taken with your models here. They're so very real. How long have you been collecting them? Just started this year, I answered. I've loved planes my whole life, but the ones that I design and work on are all luxury liners compared to. My eyes had moved from the models to Mrs. Ori and the paper that she held between her hands. It was my list of 11 missing airmen, the fruit of all the searching that I had done. I see, she said, the color slowly returning to her face. She turned and looked up at me with perplexed eyes. By any chance, have you encountered a ghost along the road since you came to Aurora? I wanted to reveal nothing of my experiences, but it was written plain upon my face. I could not hide the truth from her, and my hesitation was the only answer that she needed. Mrs. Ori and I took a seat at the table once more. She set the list of names between us, only speaking after several minutes of silence. There was so much said that night that still haunts me to this day. Shared memories of people gripped by madness and desperation something that I will refuse to speak of until the end of my days, and only summarize here because of its necessary relevance. When I had spoken to Mr. Oshino about the bombing, it was as if listening to an account written in a textbook. Dates, numbers, lists, casualties, all important things that did everything to show the scale and nothing to display the horror of what had happened. Mrs. Ori's account, on the other hand, was everything that Oshino's was not. 
fear, anger, misery. Every unquantifiable feeling and action laid bare as threads of our pitiable existence. On the night of the 19th of July, 1945, Oriori had been asleep in her bed. Her home in Awara was roughly 20 kilometers north of Fukui City, far enough away that the initial clamor of anti-aircraft fire did not disturb her. It wasn't until one of her neighbors started shouting that she was finally roused from her slumber. Mrs. Ori, still a young teen at the time, was told to stay in the house with her two younger sisters. By this time, the bombing of Fukui was well underway and the distant sounds of battle were growing fiercer by the moment. And disobeying her parents, Mrs. Ori decided to leave her sisters and head outside. Upon exiting her home, she looked up to see dozens of bombers flying directly overhead. One, however, had caught her eye. Its left engine had caught fire, and it was rapidly losing altitude. The craft faltered until finally it had disappeared behind a line of trees to the northeast. The raid was over in less than half an hour. In the distance, the city of Fuqui was burning. Most of the men, including Ori's father, ventured south to offer assistance to the survivors. In the following days, the first refugees began to appear. Burned, broken individuals had marched north in search of safety and aid. Through all of this, young Ori's mind was focused on that single bomber that she had seen crashing from the sky. She felt drawn to it, and two days after the attack, she set out to find the fallen super fortress. By noon, Ori found herself half a kilometer north of the abandoned Mayatani Quarry. The site and surrounding woodlands had become something of a minor tourist attraction before the war but now served as a refuge for young lovers and local wildlife. It was here that she found something that caught her eye. A large, square sheet of steel with the words, Old Nessie printed on it. She had found the bomber. A brief survey of the nearby woods soon turned up more wreckage, and before long she had found herself standing at the rear of a heavily damaged fuse lodge. Cautiously, she circled the plane until she had come to the front, where she found two dead bodies and a severely wounded man lying next to both of them. The man identified as Captain Reginald T. Olsen had suffered a broken leg and several lacerations across his chest and arms. Pitying the man, Orihori decided to render what aid she could. She used what supplies she had to bandage his wounds and then helped him to a more comfortable position at the side of the fuselage. For the next two days, Mrs. Ori continued her journey in secret back and forth between her home and Aurora and Old Nessie. On several occasions, she had found the captain with a pen and notebook in hand, a journal of some kind, she had thought, though she spoke no English and could not ask. Despite the aid that she gave him, his wounds were grievous, and it was clear that he would die without proper medical attention. What she didn't know, however, is that her strange behavior had not gone unnoticed. 
On the third day, she was followed by another girl, who witnessed her providing food and water to Captain Olsen. Rumors quickly spread, and before she knew what was happening, a small mob made up largely of refugees had encircled her home and demanded that she take them to the dying captain. At this point in her tale, Mrs. Ori began to weep. The memories quickly overwhelmed the woman, who could only sit and watch as the furious homeless descended upon old Nessie and its lone surviving member. They picked up the man and tied him to a tree, and then took turns debating what to do with him. In the end, it was decided that his fate should be the same as the fate that he had dealt to their beloved home. He would burn. Ori begged them to stop, but it was too late. A makeshift pyre was built at his feet, and gasoline poured upon it. The leader of the mob returned to Ori and forced her to the front, and then handed her a box of matches. Prove you're still Japanese. Burn the American or burn alongside him. Tears in her eyes, she lit the match and looked up at the dying captain. His face was stone. He showed neither fear nor regret. He couldn't have known what to said, but he must have known what they were asking of her. Silently, he gave her a nod and closed his eyes. He didn't scream. After the deed was done, the murderous group resolved to tell no one of what had happened. Hori returned home, never to venture into the woods around the quarry again. On the 15th of August, less than a month after the incident, Japan had surrendered. It was on that night that young Mrs. Ori began encountering the ghost of Captain Olsen. The circumstances of their meeting were identical to my own, though understandably the appearance of the spirit of a man she had killed caused Ori significant mental distress. Eventually, she refused to go out past sunset, and at the first opportunity upon reaching adulthood, she had packed her bags and left to find work in Tokyo. As I listened to her story, I became increasingly overcome with guilt. I had given up so easily, abandoning his lost soul who must have not only desired a release from his shackled existence. With great shame, I related to Mrs. Ori the same tale that I have recorded here. She listened without judgment, speaking only once that I had come to the end of my account. I have often found it peculiar how people sail in and out of each other's lives. Sometimes the ones that we wish most to keep at our side are the first to be carried off. And then, there are those whose value is only discovered after experiencing some common perseverance. A kindred spirit by whom we are changed, and those we also help to change. For me, Mrs. Ori was the latter and when she asked me to accompany her to the crash site of Old Nessie, I was honored to oblige. A week of poor weather kept us away, during which I still continued to encounter Captain Olsen on my way home from work. I had thought that addressing the soldier by his name and rank would stir something in the spirit, but to the last, he communicated only with two words and a finger pointed to the east. On the 15th of March, the rain clouds finally parted. 
We took my car and parked as close to the quarry as we could, and then carried forward on foot. Mrs. Ori was silent the entire journey. We proceeded slowly, taking the obstacles of the woodlands one at a time until at last, we had found ourselves at the fused lodge of Old Nessie. It had been more than 70 years since anyone had set foot in that place. Nature had overrun most of these scattered wreckage, leaving the plain a rusted hollow shell. I followed a Mrs. Ordu tree about 10 meters to the east of the fuse lodge. She sat on a long cloth that she had brought from home and asked to be left alone. I returned to the bomber and decided to survey the interior. The body had been severed at a point just before the top turret. The wings as well were absent, most likely sheared off as the plane began hitting the tree line. I attempted first to enter from the rear, but was quickly deterred by jagged steel and human remains. I quickly circled back to what had been Captain Olsen's post at the front of the nose. The glass around the cockpit was long gone, and with some maneuvering, I managed to squeeze my way inside. Damage to the interior, though not as extreme, was still quite severe. The cockpit was completely exposed to the elements, giving the inside a moldy, wet smell. I took a seat at the bomber station and stared into the woods beyond. It had been four months since I had first met the ghost of Captain Olsen, Four months of compiling lists and studying history. Four months filled with the peaks of hope and the valleys of doubt. As I sat there, listening to the wind sing a path through the trees, I began to feel the smallest glimmer of what one might refer to as a calling. A true path that one sets upon in their lives, known only to them and no one else. For what was my four months compared to the 73 years that Reginald Olsen waited for someone to find him? How many others were still out there? Souls trapped in this prison of organized reality. How many men sent to die? How many lives taken? How many homes burned to cinders? Lost in my thoughts as I was... I barely noticed when my elbow bumped against a small compartment, knocking it open. My ears heard something soft at the metal floor, and when I looked down, I found a passport a size notebook, the initials RTO embossed upon it. I retrieved the notebook and exited the cockpit. Mrs. Ori still sat on her knees in front of the tree, only now she was no longer alone. To her side stood the ghost of the captain, whose hand she held as she wept. In those last moments, he turned to look at me. His clothes were no longer charred. His cheeks were rose-colored and clean-shaven. His eyes were peaceful. We needed no words. Everything that needed to be said was said in the trees and in the grass, in the wind that blew and the soft clouds that passed overhead. And then, he was gone. The following day, I reported the location of Old Nessie to both Mr. Oceano at the museum and the local police. The finding of the bomber made local news headlines, and by the 30th of March, the remains of all 11 airmen had been positively identified and returned to the United States.
Mrs. Ori died on the 19th of July, 2020, on the 75th anniversary of the bombing. I'm told that she passed quietly in her sleep, with a smile on her face. As for me, my long walks home from work have become quite lonely. I miss the man who infused such overwhelming purpose in my monotonous life. I sometimes turn to the streetlights, waiting for Captain Olsen to appear, but I know that he never will again. He has moved on, and so now must I. That'll do it for this week's stories. Thank you all so much for sticking around until the end. It really means a lot to me. I would also like to give a big thank you to this week's sponsor, Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com slash mrcreeps to get your free life insurance quote and see how much you could save. I hope you're all doing great wherever you may be in the world. Thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic morning, day or night. And as always, stay creepy.